2: Welcome to the Humanist Report, my name is Mike Figueredo and this is episode 260 of the program. Today is Friday, October 2nd and before we get started as usual, I want to take some time to thank all of our newest Patreon, PayPal, and YouTube members, all of which who either signed up for the very first time to support us this week or increased the monthly pledge that they were already giving us and that includes Andrej Snitko, Cosmin Stroh, Diana Rowley, Kenna Wickman, Lee, Orion Paxo, 9 R.B. Ellis, Sean St. Hart, Stephen Clays, and Tony. Thank you so much to all of these kind individuals. If you'd also like to support the show and join the independent progressive media revolution, you can do so by going to humanistreport.com slash support, patreon.com slash humanistreport, or by clicking join underneath any one of our YouTube videos. We've got quite the interesting show this week because, as you all know, the 2020 election is heating up, and there's a lot to talk about. So, we'll discuss Trump's tax returns, and I will tell you what you need to know about Donald Trump's Supreme Court nominee, Amy Coney Barrett. Additionally, we'll talk about the debate, if you can even call it that, between Joe Biden and Donald Trump, and we'll discuss specific segments that stood out to me, in particular Trump's response to his record on COVID-19, as well as his incitement of voter intimidation at the debate. We'll also discuss the subsequent damage control after the debate that Republicans tried to do to clean up the mess that Donald Trump made. Also, Bill Maher can't get over Hillary Clinton and the 2016 election. And Katie Porter grills a big pharma CEO. And um, it was great. Finally, we will close the show by talking about the Gravel Institute's new initiative that they are launching to take on Prager you. That's what we've got on the agenda for today's episode and more. I hope you all will enjoy it. Let's get right to it. Uh enjoy, I guess. It's hard to say enjoy when We're not watching news that's pleasant, but nonetheless, um, watch it. (laughs) That's all I got. I'm sorry. So over the weekend the new york times released a lot of information about donald trump's coveted tax returns and we're going to talk about all of that and some of the revelations from this report but before we do that i have to share this tweet from donald trump that he put out on april 13th of 2012 where he says barack obama who wants to raise all our taxes only pays 20.5 percent on a $790,000 salary do as i say not as i do yeah as we all know now, that aged like milk. It might be the worst aged Trump tweet of all time, and there's a lot of them, but um, there's a lot in this story. And before we even get to the specific details, we're also going to address the impact that this may or may not have on the election. I I think that this is important. I think the details here matter, and it would be smart for Joe Biden and Democrats to hit him on these details, but I want people to understand that you can't, Let this distract you from the real crisis here that we're facing. COVID-19, 200,000 plus Americans have died. And I don't think that this scandal is larger than that. He bungled COVID-19. He's the one who stopped the Postal Service from distributing five masks to each family. He's the one who lied to us about the severity of COVID-19. So I think that it is important for everyone to not you know, um, get bogged by down by the details of this story. But it is still super important. And I think that there is a possibility that this can actually hurt him electorally. But by how much, it's it's really difficult to gauge. But before we get to all of that, let's actually talk about what the New York Times reports. So to give you a broad overview, they describe, quote, a recurring pattern of ascent and decline, where basically, you know, there's been times when he's been just straight up broke, But he also had times where he was relatively successful. He stumbled upon lucrative ventures such as being the co-owner of the Miss Universe pageant as well as his time as a reality television show star when he hosted The Apprentice. But overall, he's in really bad shape and um, it's infuriating to know that he's not paying his fair share of taxes. In fact, you're paying more than Donald Trump. I guarantee it. Yes, you watching this video. So they explain... Donald J. Trump paid $750 in federal income taxes the year he won the presidency. In his first year in the White House, he paid another $750. He had paid no income taxes at all in 10 of the previous 15 years, largely because he reported losing much more money than he made. As the president wages a re-election campaign that polls say he is in danger of losing, his finances are under stress, beset by losses and hundreds of millions of dollars in debt coming due that he has personally guaranteed. Also hanging over him is a decade-long audit battle with the Internal Revenue Service over the legitimacy of a $72.9 million tax refund that he claimed and received after declaring huge losses. An adverse ruling could cost him more than $100 million. Now, we just have to pause for a moment and reflect on the fact that in 10 of the 15 years, he paid zero in taxes. How infuriating is that? You pay more than the president of the United States in taxes. Like, I get that we've heard this over the weekend and, like, it's it's something that maybe we're desensitized to. And honestly, if you've been paying attention, this isn't shocking that elites, you know, large multinational corporations and millionaires and billionaires get away with things like this, but we shouldn't allow ourselves to accept this as the norm and become desensitized to it because this really is outrageous. You may be working at a job where you get maybe a little bit over minimum wage. You don't make a living wage. You make less than $15 an hour. And you are getting more money taken out of your check than the president. Like, how frustrating is that to think about? Like, to actually see it? Because we know that this is happening. But when you see it laid out like this, it just, it is infuriating. Now, what we have to acknowledge is that this isn't just like Trump bad, that's why he didn't do this. This is a systemic flaw within our system. Yes, Donald Trump is a fraud. Yes, he's a tax dodger. But our system is what allows people like Donald Trump to get away with things like this. I think that Bernie Sanders put out a phenomenal tweet where he says, yes, Trump's not alone. Federal income taxes paid by corporations a year after his tax plan was signed into law. Zero dollars from Amazon, zero from GM, zero from Netflix, zero from Chevron, FedEx, Eli Lilly, Starbucks. Dr. King was right. We have socialism for the rich, rugged capitalism for the rest. So it is important that we shame Donald Trump for this. In fact, I think that Joe Biden selling bumper stickers that say I paid more in taxes than Donald Trump. I think that that's clever, but I don't want people to get too you know, bogged down by the Trump angle. I mean, sure, you have to shame him. This is an election. So strategically, it makes sense to do that. But understand, you can't just not acknowledge the elephant in the room. And that is our late stage capitalist system that allows elites like Donald Trump to get away with this. Like, he is taking advantage of a corrupt system that shifts the tax burden away from elites and onto working-class Americans. So, if you are going to try to convince your friends, you know, how outrageous this is and get them to not vote for Donald Trump or whatever, like, you do have to point that out. This is an issue with our system. It's not just Donald Trump. Even if, yes, he is a greedy elite and an oligarch. Um, but the way that he was able to get away with paying uh, basically nothing in taxes— is really interesting. So they explain, Mr. Trump has written off as business expenses costs, including fuel and meals associated with his aircraft used to shuttle him among his various homes and properties. Likewise, the cost of haircuts, including the more than $70,000 paid to style his hair during The Apprentice. Together, nine Trump entities have written off at least $95,464 paid to a favorite hair and makeup Artist of Ivanka Trump in allowing business expenses to be deducted, the IRS requires that they may be ordinary and necessary—a loosely defined standard often interpreted generously by business owners. So basically, he wrote off everything. Um, and what stood out to me the most is the seventy thousand uh, dollars, seventy thousand plus dollars that he paid for his hair to a stylist. I mean, if you paid that much for your hairstyle that shitty comb over, you need to get your money back. Or I should correct myself. We need to get our money back because we're the ones who foot the bill for that hairstylist. (laughs) Where do you even find someone who charges that much? Like, people who are elites like Donald Trump, they live in a different universe than you and I. Like, can you imagine, like, if I tried to go somewhere in Portland and pay more than $1,000 for a haircut, I would struggle because I don't even know who charges that much. And I would refuse to pay more than probably, like, I don't know, $50 for a really, really good haircut, uh, including tip uh, because I'm a tightwad. But I mean, like you paid $70,000 and you deducted that. Fuck you. I mean, I'm on the humanist report. This is technically a business. If I pay for a haircut, do I get to deduct that? Because I haven't been. I think that that's probably not something that would be uh, deemed ordinary and necessary by the IRS. But he doesn't even care. Like, he's shameless. He's writing off everything. You know, me going from mansion to mansion, I'm going to write off that, you know, travel expense. He's just shameless. Um, but on top of that, his write-offs, they're not just ridiculous and shameless. They also, uh, as we're going to find out from this next paragraph, wreak of fraud, abuse, corruption, and nepotism. Because he cited $747,622 that he deducted in quote-unquote consulting fees. And conspicuously enough, it looks like he paid his daughter, Ivanka Trump, for that. The consultants are not identified in the tax records, but evidence of his arrangement was gleaned by comparing the confidential tax records to the financial disclosures Ivanka Trump filed when she joined the White House staff in 2017. Ms. Trump reported receiving payments from a consulting company she co-owned totaling $747,622 that exactly matched consulting fees claimed as tax deductions by the Trump Organization for Hotel Projects in Vancouver and Hawaii. So he he writes off hundreds of thousands of dollars in consulting fees to his daughter to his daughter doesn't say that but when they connect the dots they find out that the amount that he supposedly paid in consulting fees that he wants to write off went to ivanka trump do we really believe that she's consulting him no and when i hear about this this really reminds me of the 2018 report from the New York Times when they actually extensively detailed the fraud that Trump's family committed and you know basically him and his father and his whole family actually they committed this scheme to avoid paying taxes when he died and passed down that wealth by fraudulently hiding that money and moving it around and we're seeing shades of that here so i mean you know uh the apple doesn't fall far from the tree he got his wealth because his dad left him a lot of money And he's trying to do the same thing, benefit Ivanka or money that would otherwise go to the government. He's making sure it goes to his daughter. Maybe she gives it back to him. I don't know, but I don't care. That is nepotism. And we're footing the bill for this rich oligarchic family. Um, Now, it's more than just like the tax fraud. There is a huge angle to this story that people have to acknowledge and grapple with there is extensive violations of the Emoluments Clause, conflicts of interest that amount to an impeachable offense. And I get it. We already went through the impeachment debacle, as some will call it. Um, he should have been impeached, but he wasn't. But I always contended that he needed to be impeached also because of his violations of the Emoluments Clause. And if you weren't on board before, then this should get you on board because it shows beyond a shadow of a doubt that Donald Trump Is not operating in good faith on behalf of the United States, knowing that all of these foreign governments are uh, making him money. They argue against the backdrop, the records go much further toward revealing the actual and potential conflicts of interest created by Mr. Trump's refusal to divest himself of his business interests while in the White House. His properties have become bazaars for collecting money directly from lobbyists, foreign officials, and others seeking FaceTime access or favor. The records for the first time put precise dollar figures on those transactions. At the Mar-a-Lago Club in Palm Beach, Florida, a flood of new members starting in 20. 20- 2015, allowed him to pocket an additional $5 million a year from the business. In 2017, the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association paid at least $397,602 to the Washington Hotel, where the group held at least one event during its four-day world summit in defense of persecuted Christians. The Times was also able to take the fullest measure to date of the president's income from overseas, where he holds ultimate sway over American diplomacy. When he took office, Mr. Trump said he would pursue no new foreign deals as president, even. Even so, his first two years in the White House, his revenue from abroad totaled $73 million. And while much of that money was from his Gulf properties in Scotland and Ireland, some came from licensing deals in countries with authoritarian leading leaders or thorny geopolitics. For example, 3 million from the Philippines, 2.3 million from India, and 1 million from Turkey. He reported paying taxes in turn on a number of his overseas ventures, in 2017, the president's $750 contribution to the operations of the U.S. government was dwarfed by the $15,598 he or his companies paid in Panama, the $145,400 in India, and $156,824 in the Philippines. So, how are we supposed to believe that when he acts as a diplomat on behalf of the United States, he's not just doing things to benefit himself. I mean, he's paying more taxes to these governments than he is to the United States. How are we not supposed to suggest that, you know, his loyalty lies with them? And I get that we're kind of wading into the um, same argument that they were making with regard to the Russiagate scandal. But this is actually something that we have that's tangible. He's paying more money to the Philippines. He has business dealings with these other countries. They're making money for his organization. He's personally profiting. And we're just supposed to sit back and accept this? I mean, this is what the emoluments clause is for. But yet, nothing. Not even really much um, noise about this aspect of this story, which I think is really important, if not the most important aspect of this story. Now, you have the details for the most part. This is kind of just... (laughs) A simplified view of the entire story i'll link to it down below if you want to read the entire article it is really really long but it's it's important however the question that i'm asking is will any of this matter when it comes to the election and i think that it has the potential to matter but the problem is that democrats oftentimes they're just not good at driving narratives what i saw on twitter was a lot of people mostly you know donut centrist neoliberal twitter shaming him for being broke that's tone deaf. You know, if you take this approach, then uh, you are kind of ignoring the fact that a lot lot of Americans are broke and they can kind of see that as, oh, we'll see, it's just these, you know, um, coastal elites shaming Donald Trump for being broke. But maybe because he's broke, he can identify with someone like me because I'm also broke. Like, that's not the way that you want to go about this. However, if they focus on the fact that you know, elites like him pay little to no taxes and you have to foot the bill like you personally are paying more and losing money because people like him don't pay their fair share, that can resonate. But again, I want this to be a critique of the system and I don't think Democrats are savvy enough or even willing to do that because they don't want to change the system. So basically, the only way I can see this actually landing for Democrats is if they focus on the corruption and the conflicts of interest i think that donald trump was able able to succeed because he was running against someone like hillary clinton who was so corrupt and we all knew that trump had these corrupt business dealings and he was you know a fraudulent businessman with the trump university and trump organizations but now he's in power so it lands more like the attacks are different so if joe biden tries to attack him for this i think it could work although the problem is that trump can just turn around and say well, look at hunter biden look at the nepotism there with him working for you know a ukrainian energy company when he had no experience and he was making all of this money like he can easily turn this around and what i fear is that if trump turns this around republicans are a lot more disciplined in messaging and it could quickly backfire for democrats so like it's frustrating because this really is a scandal like if this were 1985 or 1992 this would end someone's campaign But because we live in the Trump era, I think that things like this won't necessarily land. But I think that what you have to focus on if we're being strategic and we just want to beat Donald Trump is COVID-19, 200,000 Americans died under Trump's watch. So I think that it is important that you bring this up and you hit him on this. But if Democrats are going to even attack the corruption angle, I mean, if we're not anticipating any action, an impeachment trial in 2021, then I I feel like it's all hopeless. Like, it's just going to encourage people or influence people to think, well, look, you said he's corrupt, but now you're not prosecuting him. And I I would never expect Democrats to do this. If they were going to prosecute anyone, it would have been George W. Bush and Dick Cheney when Obama took office. So, you know, I I think that the best thing that Democrats can do going forward is to focus on COVID-19 because this really is the thing that is impacting everyone right now. It's the number one issue. And it's where. He basically blew it. Um, but with that being said, I don't want to give you this impression that this story isn't important because it really is important. But in the Trump era, you really have to pick and choose your battles. And even though this is something that, you know, at the individual level we can use to maybe drive outrage with our friends and family and get them to not vote for Trump or not support Trump, if they realize that it's really unfair that they're paying more than him, but if I see Democrats like trying to capitalize on this story, I just see them face planting and it's sad, but they're so bad at messaging and driving and creating a narrative that I can only see them fucking up if they hyper focus on this. So I-, I think that what they need to do is focus on COVID- COVID-19 and for us, we can use this to try to appeal to working class people because it really is outrageous that, you know, donald trump is paying less in taxes than you're paying how insane is that you may work at mcdonald's or in retail and the president of the united states paid way less than you like that is outrageous that is infuriating it's infuriating so you know when it comes to the question is will any of this matter i am leaning towards <sighs> it could Well, over the weekend, Donald Trump named who we all expected him to name to replace Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. He selected Amy Coney Barrett and this individual is the polar opposite of Ruth Bader Ginsburg in every conceivable way. They are ideologically on opposite sides of the political spectrum and when it comes to their judicial philosophies, she is nothing like Ruth Bader Ginsburg. In fact, she explicitly stated that she is uh, very similar to Justice Scalia in terms of how she interprets the Constitution. Don't take it from me, take it from her.
1: I clerked for Justice Scalia more than 20 years ago, but the lessons I learned still resonate. His judicial philosophy is mine too.
2: Now, this is worrying because Justice Scalia was a strict constructionist. That's the way that he interpreted the Constitution. Now, at face value, you might think, well, that doesn't necessarily seem that bad. Aren't strict constructionists just fairly consistent and principled? Uh, Well, no, not necessarily. But on top of that, this is an antiquated way, in my opinion, of interpreting the Constitution because it isn't something that, you know, um, is conducive to change in a changing society. Like, I mean, the Constitution itself, they don't see it as a living, breathing document, and that's problematic. Like, You can disagree with that notion, but the problem is that society is constantly in flux and you have to be able to have a judicial system that changes with the times. But the way that she interprets the the Constitution wouldn't allow for that, right? So what a strict constructionist would believe, for example, with gay rights, is that Well, look, if the Constitution doesn't explicitly name gay people and say that they have the right to marry, then they don't have the right to marry. According to someone like her, to the extent that we have civil rights and civil liberties, the Constitution lays it out explicitly. It says it literally. Otherwise, it's not there. And Congress needs to uh, pass a constitutional amendment and change it, which is super easy, of course. So, you know, she would disagree with someone like Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who believes that there are certain rights that emanate out of the Constitution. So, the Equal Protection Clause, you know, can be extended to members of the LGBTQ plus community based on legal precedent. But to her, she'd say, well, it doesn't say gay people, so that doesn't extend to gay people. That is the type of way that she interprets the Constitution. So, it's troubling. And what's especially alarming is the fact that she is part of, I don't want to say a cult, but a cult-ish branch of Catholicism called People of Praise. And it is very, very evident that this group influences her judicial views. Now, of all people, Joan Walsh actually had a pretty fair breakdown of this in The Nation, and she explains, Barrett's religious views themselves would not be of concern if we didn't have ample evidence that they influence her legal views, and it's important to note that people of praise is significantly more restrictive than Catholicism. The group has gotten some exaggerated and unfair coverage. While it traditionally termed male community leaders, heads, and their female counterparts, handmaids oh god it didn't inspire margaret atwood's the handmaid's tale though to be safe it changed handmaids to leaders after the hulu hit debuted cult experts say it's not a cult press x to doubt if you check out its facebook page most posts are inspiring stories of charity and grace also its post-covid events feature people making distributing and wearing masks Wow, the bar is very low. But there is no denying that the group opposes abortion and gay marriage and bars out LGBT people from membership. It's South Bend School Trinity, where Barrett was on the board for several years, teaches male and female students separately and prohibits dating. In 2017, the New York Times reported that while group members confirmed that Barrett and her husband were part of People of Praise, in fact, both their fathers had been leaders, she didn't disclose her membership in Senate confirmation documents. Meanwhile, links that mentioned her in the group's magazine vine and branches some recent according to the times vanished from its website so she's trying to hide her membership to this group but she is part of this group which you can argue is a cult now i'm no expert so the cult experts say this isn't actually a cult but i think you can reasonably reasonably deduce that it's at least culty right <laughs> because i mean this is obviously something that is a huge part of her life Of course, it's going to influence her decisions on the Supreme Court. Now, what's alarming to me is the fact that the media hasn't been properly vetting her. Now, I understand on one hand that, you know, she doesn't have an extensive judicial record, you know, so it's hard to pick it apart if there's not much there there. But what we've been seeing from the media is um, a little nauseating. For example, liberal elites like Noah Feldman, who write for Bloomberg, say that even though they disagree with her on everything, well, you know, she's super nice in real life, so that's enough. She should definitely sit on the highest court and uh, be there for decades and rule against civil rights, civil liberties, and be a good little stooge to corporate America because, you know, she's nice. Yeah, gonna need more than that. And on top of that, we don't see um, much resistance from Democrats because she's a woman. So, as Jim Van de Haye of Axios puts it, Democrats privately fear that going too hard on Judge Amy Coney Barrett in her confirmation hearings could wind up backfiring if senators are perceived as being nasty to an accomplished woman. So, in other words, let's not vet her because she is a woman and we don't want to be sexist. Isn't it sexist to not treat women the same as men? Like, to not hold them to the same standard as men? I mean they've drunken their own kool-aid and now it's hurting them but i mean i don't even think democrats want to fight so they're looking for any excuse to just back down from this um so basically her confirmation in my mind is a foregone conclusion i would be surprised if she wasn't confirmed quickly now there's really no way to tell exactly what we can expect from her does this mean that she would certainly vote to repeal roe v wade not necessarily but is it reasonable to suspect that she would vote against Roe v. Wade in the event that came up? Well, sure, based on uh, the way that she ruled on two other cases related to abortion. In one, the full appeals court declined to review a panel decision that blocked from taking effect an Indiana parental consent law for minors seeking abortions. The law on this has been fairly clear for decades. It is constitutional for states to require that minors seeking abortions obtain parental consent. However, such laws must provide what is known as a judicial bypass allowing the minor to demonstrate that she is mature enough to make the decision on her own or that an abortion would be in her best interest. Not with Standing this settled law, Indiana enacted a parental consent law that mandated that the parent be informed of the planned abortion unless the judge further decided that it would not be in the minor's best interests. A district judge blocked the law and a three-judge appeals court panel agreed. The panel, splitting two to one, noted the serious risk that prior notice, instead of giving parents an opportunity to offer wise counsel, will actually give parents an opportunity to exercise a practical veto, preventing the pregnant minor from actually exercising the constitutional right the juvenile court has allowed her to exercise. The full appeals court, dividing six to five, let that decision stand. Barrett and two other Trump nominees joined the dissent, which stated, the issue as a matter of federalism. Preventing a state statute from taking effect is a judicial act of extraordinary gravity in our federal structure. The second case involved an even more extreme Indiana law signed by Vice President Mike Pence when he was governor. It prohibited abortions performed for reasons related to sex, race, or disability. Specifically, a woman who discovered that her fetus had Down syndrome would be barred from terminating the pregnancy. An appeals court panel composed of three Republican appointees agreed with the lower court that the law was flatly unconstitutional Constitutional. The non-discrimination provisions clearly violate well-established Supreme Court precedent holding that a woman may terminate her pregnancy prior to viability and that the state may not prohibit a woman from exercising that right for any reason, the court said. Indiana didn't ask the appeals court to reconsider that part of the ruling, just a different aspect of the law involving the disposal of fetal remains. That didn't stop Barrett from joining a dissent that labeled the law a eugenics statute. Now, that's basically more information than you need. But what it tells us is that when it comes to the issue of abortion, she sided with the justices who opted for more restrictions on abortion. That's a big sign. That's a big red flag. Now, for these particular cases, the reason why there should be a judicial bypass and maybe why, you know, a court might want to allow a minor to have an abortion without the consent of her parents is because she could have abusive parents or parents who are in a group like People of Praise where if she were raped, they wouldn't allow for that abortion to take place. So we need minors to be at least... You know uh, able to make their case in a court now when it comes to you know the law that mike pence signs i don't know how many people are basing their abortions off of sex or race but what a lot of these cases are are trojan horses what they want to do is try to attack abortion in whatever way they can to impose more restrictions so those restrictions end up getting solidified by courts you build on that legal precedent and ultimately you could work its way you know work your way up to the supreme court and end up getting roe v wade overturned so that's what i think a lot of these restrictions are about they just want to make this be you know um one case that gets us to that point of repealing roe v wade to where for hearing this maybe we're you know examining whether or not abortion should be legal altogether if states are allowed to um, ban abortions or not. So, I mean, it's troubling, but abortion and like social issues, that's not the only area which should concern us. This individual will be hearing the upcoming ACA lawsuit that will be argued in front of the Supreme Court. And so, she will likely be a vote to repeal the Affordable Care Act, which means that patients with pre-existing conditions will no longer be protected, which means just like that Tens of millions lose their insurance. And look, I don't defend the ACA very frequently. I think it's garbage right-wing reform, right? I don't like free-market, neoliberal health insurance reforms. I want, you know, a single-payer system. I want a national health system. But if she gets her way, even the shitty law won't stand. If she gets on the court, I should say. But she will get her way. Trump will likely get his way. Now, on top of that... Trump himself has explained why he wants to rush this confirmation process. And it's because he can anticipate a situation where we're seeing another Bush v. Gore play out and he wants to make sure that he has all the votes on the Supreme Court that he can possibly get in the event these nine unelected justices choose to override the will of the American people once again
1: you have a full complement of the Supreme Court? Well, it's
3: a great Trump. question, a very fair question. Yes, I think it's very important. I think this will end up in the Supreme Court. And I think it's very important that we have nine justices. And I think the system is going to go very quickly. But I think it's better if you go before the election, because I think this, this scam that the Democrats are pulling, it's a scam. This scam will be before the United States Supreme Court. And I think having a 4-4 situation is not a good situation if you get that i don't know that you'd get that i think it should be eight nothing or nine nothing but just in case it would be uh more political than it should be i think it's very important to have a uh, ninth justice
2: yeah now what's startling is that if trump gets his way he is confirming someone to the supreme court who was actually involved in the bush vigor decision like Kavanaugh and Roberts. So, as David Sirota explains in an article for Jacobin, Three years ago, Barrett told the Senate Judiciary Committee that one significant case on which I provided research and briefing assistance was Bush v. Gore. She said she worked on the case for the law firm Baker Botts while it was in Florida courts. She declined to detail the scope of her work on the case and for other clients at the firm, saying I no longer have records of matters upon which I worked. If Barrett is confirmed, she will join two other lawyers from the Republican team that worked on the case that handed the GOP the presidency in 2000. Chief Justice Roberts counseled then-Florida Governor Jeb Bush during that election, according to emails. The Los Angeles Times reported that Roberts traveled to Tallahassee, the state capital, to dispense legal advice and operated in the shadows at least some of those 37 days that decided the election. Roberts has a long record of working to limit voting rights. It is a similar story for Justice Brett Kavanaugh. The Miami Herald reported that during the Florida standoff, Kavanaugh joined Bush's legal team, which was trying to stop the ballot recount in the state. Kavanaugh appeared on national television to push for the ruling that halted the statewide recount and handed Bush the presidency. So if she were to be confirmed, which is highly likely in my opinion, then Trump is nominating someone who is a partisan to the court, regardless if she'll admit that or not. She's a partisan, she's an extremist, she's a far right Republican. Um, and she's not just going to dictate what is legal precedent in the United States for decades to come, she's going to play a role potentially in determining who's president. I mean, it doesn't get any more bleak than this, folks. And it just doesn't seem like Democrats have the will to fight. It doesn't seem like the media wants to actually apply even a minimal amount of scrutiny what we know about her record and there's a lot there to critique even though it's not as much as kavanaugh and this is just it's bad but you know it's not surprising because in 2020 america we've come to expect that the worst possible outcome is also the most likely scenario that will play out in reality so um nobody's really talking about the threat that she poses but basically expect her to rule in the same way that we'd we'd expect someone like Justice Scalia to rule. So, whenever something bad happens, whenever Trump gets a new uh, Supreme Court appointment that he gets to pick, whenever he gets more authoritarian, smug liberals look down upon the peasants from their ivory towers and they remind them, You did this, peasants. You are responsible for all of this. It's not the system that led to Donald Trump, it's not Democrats for failing to appeal to voters you did this it's not even donald trump or republican party voters you are the one responsible for all of the problems happening in america and this type of rhetoric and behavior isn't just morally reprehensible but this is why people hate liberals this is why people hate liberals. So let me show you a couple of examples. Vox writer Aaron Rupart tweeted this out. Amy Coney Barrett is anti-abortion, anti-gun control, anti-healthcare, and even seems to oppose same-sex marriage. She could sit on SCOTUS for 40 years. Hope those Jill Stein protest votes were worth it. Yes, because the 1% of the electorate that voted for Jill Stein is more responsible for this than Hillary is for losing or more responsible than Ruth Bader Ginsburg herself for not retiring when Obama was still in power, when Democrats were in control of the Senate. If you have a system where our entire democracy hinges on the well-being of really old people with cancer, you know, that's a really dysfunctional system. Now, like, I, I feel bad that Ruth Bader Ginsburg struggled, you know, and suffered for that long but i mean she had autonomy she could have retired so i mean does she not get any blame does hillary not get any blame for not you know campaigning in wisconsin why is it that specifically you're targeting jill stein voters well it's because they weren't compliant and to you obedience is everything obedience is everything you know we're never going to look in the mirror and try to determine what we did wrong As Democrats, we're just going to name and shame until you fall in line. And anytime Trump does something bad, we're going to remind you, you did this. This was you. Now, uh, Aaron Rupar was actually uh, not the worst example of this because Bill Maher apparently uh, decided to take voter shaming to the next level in maybe one of the smuggest segments he's ever done, which I know saying that Bill Maher is smug is kind of like saying, you know, the sky is blue, but this was like the worst ever
4: not to relitigate old wounds, but all the Hillary equivocators from 2016, the people who said she was racist, not really that different from Trump, the ones who voted third party, the ones who stayed home because, you know, the lesser of two evils. Sorry, but you all have to eat it one more time. (laughs) Because oh, how I would love me some of that Hillary evil right now (laughs) You know the evil where liberals would currently have a six to three majority on the court The evil where people wouldn't be facing having their health care taken away or their right to vote or where America wasn't sliding into autocracy Yes Yes Let's, uh, let's look at the alternative universe. If a few more people in 2016 had told themselves, yeah, she's not my favorite, but you only get two choices in our system, it's probably better to make sure this sane, competent person gets in as opposed to a malignant narcissist. In that universe, we're still in the pra- Paris Climate Accord, and Iran's nuclear program is still frozen, and maybe so is Greenland. <laughs> <clears throat> there have been none of the rollbacks on clean air and water. Dreamers don't have to worry about getting tossed out of the only country they've ever known. William Barr is just a right wing crank self publishing a book on our moral decline. <laughs> and Brett Kavanaugh is drinking from home. <laughs> Oh. <laughs> oh, it's a it's a wonderful world, this world. People hearing the words P-Tape only think of R. Kelly. <laughs> and no one has needed or heard of a pink pussy hat, let alone tried to knit one. <laughs> and look, no nation as fundamentally unhealthy as this one could escape a pandemic unscathed, but I think Hillary would have done a little better than let them drink bleach. (laughs) So, the Supreme Court hears oral arguments to overturn Obamacare on November 10th. Once this new justice is seated, Obamacare is likely gone. And after that, Roe versus Wade. So I hope you enjoy carrying your rape baby to term. You can name it Jill Stein. that was horrible.
2: That is why people hate liberals. Leftists and socialists who should theoretically, you know, uh, be able to work with liberals on some things can't stand them. Why there's this civil war in the Democratic Party? It's because there's no respect. There's no attempt to try to approach third party voters and Jill Stein voters and people who didn't vote from, you know, a place of understanding and empathy. It's just Judge, 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 blame, blame, blame. I mean, you're a multimillionaire, Bill Maher, and you're explaining to people who made this choice, who are less privileged than you, that they're wrong and they're responsible for everything that's bad when they're the ones who are bearing the brunt of the consequences, not you. You're judging them from your ivory towers in the most condescending way imaginable. He says, the ones who voted third party, the ones who stayed home because, you know, the lesser of two evils, sorry, but you all have to eat it one more time. And in addition to this, you know, there's everyone sharing gifs of Hillary Clinton laughing, saying, Hillary fucking warned you about all of this. What? And then he goes on to explain, um, you know, Hillary would have been so much better. Nobody is saying that Hillary Clinton wouldn't have been better than Donald Trump. Sure, you can say maybe it was the case that some people went too far in their criticisms of Hillary Clinton and perpetuated this false equivalence that was harmful, but nobody is saying that things wouldn't be better under Hillary Clinton. We all admit that Donald Trump is bad and acknowledge that Donald Trump is bad, but Hillary Clinton, she's got to be at least somewhat culpable in your mind, no? If Hillary had the foresight that everyone says she does— and that she warned us about all of this, why didn't she have the foresight when voting for the Iraq war? Why didn't she anticipate that Trump would be a bigger threat than he was when she propped him up with her Pied Piper strategy, when Bill Clinton encouraged him to run? On top of that, Hillary Clinton kept giving the middle finger to Bernie Sanders supporters. And even though 85% of them fell in line and voted for Hillary Clinton, you're still outraged at the fact that that 15% didn't fall in line. And most Jill Stein votes probably came from these deep blue states like California and New York, but still, you blame the voters and not Hillary Clinton. Like, do you understand why this is problematic? You're turning people off. Do you think this is going to encourage people to vote for the Democratic Party? Do you honestly believe this is going to benefit you? Or are you just doing this literally because it makes you feel superior? Here's the thing. In 2016, 46.9% of eligible voters stayed home. And, you know, Bill Maher kind of alluded to the fact that they're also to blame. But do you think this is because half of Americans were just, like, super petty and hated Hillary Clinton? Or do you think that there are systemic factors here worth looking at? The fact that voting rights are under attack. The fact that people have to work and they may not be able to actually go to the polls. But it speaks to a flaw in the entire system because when you have uh, like most people or half of people not participating in democracy that means that that democracy is not very healthy that means that democracy is dying in that country so there's something deeper going on here but bill maher isn't intellectually curious he just wants to do what makes himself feel better and that is you know make everyone else feel like shit so he can feel good when he does jack fucking shit to make sure that Trump doesn't get another term. How many phone calls did you make for Hillary Clinton in 2016, Bill? How many phone calls are you making for Joe Biden? How many doors are you knocking on? How much money are you donating?
1: Come on, man.
2: Now, he also blamed people that voted for Jill Stein and suggests that she acted as a spoiler. And Democrats always point to Wisconsin and that, you know, if Jill Stein wasn't there... Hillary Clinton would have taken Wisconsin. But if you look at those 2016 results, Gary Johnson was the Republican Party spoiler and he got three times the amount of votes that Jill Stein did. And in this particular state, if you took away third-party options and assumed they would have voted for the two major parties and you distribute their votes away from Jill Stein and Gary Johnson to Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump, Trump wins by an even larger margin, so the spoiler ended up helping Hillary Clinton in many ways in 2016. Not to mention the fact that someone like my mom who voted for Jill Stein helped Democrats. Because look, my mom was in her 60s and for the very first time she registered to vote in 2016 because she believed that Bernie Sanders was the only politician that ever cared. But when Bernie lost, she decided, I don't want to vote, I'm going to check out. So I showed her Jill Stein's platform you know, I told her that she has policies that are very similar to Bernie Sanders. And, you know, of course, I explained we're in Oregon. It's a deep blue state. So, you know, it's not as crucial here. The electoral votes will go to Hillary Clinton. And, you know, if we vote for Jill Stein, maybe we can get the Greens to 5% to where Democrats will feel the need to steal some of their policies and see them as competition or institute ranked choice voting. Like, my mom voted because Jill Stein inspired her. And a lot of people voted because Jill Stein inspired her. If Jill Stein wasn't an option, that's not to say that those voters would have voted for Hillary Clinton. It would have led to more people probably staying home. And guess what? My mom didn't vote for Hillary Clinton, neither did I. But we still voted for Democrats down the ballot. My mom did too. She's a non-voter. And then she registered to vote for the first time because of Bernie Sanders. And had she not been convinced to vote for Jill Stein she wouldn't have voted for Democrats at the state and local level. So by you shaming Jill Stein voters when just getting people to vote in and of itself is a challenge in America, you should be ashamed of yourself, Bill Maher. You should be ashamed of yourself, especially considering the fact that most leftists and Bernie Sanders supporters end up falling in line Anyway, and guess what? You basically got what you wanted. Look at this poll here. A plurality of people that voted third party in 2016 will, in fact, be voting for Joe Biden this time. And an outright majority of people who just didn't vote in 2016 say that they will, in fact, be voting for Joe Biden this time. So, I mean, liberals got exactly what they wanted. What more do you want? And now that you have more people doing what you want, now you're going to say, fuck anyone who uh, didn't support Hillary Clinton. You did all of this. Trump appointing Amy Coney Barrett, you did this. It's not that Democrats refused to fight. It's not that Ruth Bader Ginsburg was irresponsible for not retiring as much as we wanted her on the Supreme Court and needed her on the Supreme Court. She knew the risk. Democrats knew the risk. Hillary knew the risk of running a shitty campaign where you don't reach out to the left and you don't go to Wisconsin, but yet you blame voters. If anything, like one of the people who voted for third party in 2016— And is now going to vote for Joe Biden? Like hearing you say that, trying to make them feel like shit, do you honestly think they're going to agree with you? Or do you think they're just going to say, all right, well, fuck it then. I can't win. I'm still a piece of shit, even though this time I'm voting for Joe Biden. So fuck it. I'm just not going to vote. Like, do you honestly think you're helping Democrats here? It's just astonishing that liberals like Bill Maher continue to do this. No sense of self awareness whatsoever. about that debate that was, um, that was traumatizing. (laughs) That was a shit show. I mean, it was everything I expected it to be, but still, I wasn't ready for that. America deserves better. And coming away from this, I don't even know if there is a definitive winner. Because all that we got was chaos. It was madness. Chris Wallace was just unable to rein in Donald Trump. There was zero substance. There were some digs at um, Bernie Sanders and the left. Donald Trump contradicted himself multiple times. Edmund not shut up. I don't know any average voter who doesn't consume politics as frequently as you and I who's going to come away from this thinking, wow, that was really enlightening. And in fact, we know that people do not come away from this feeling energized or optimistic or feeling as if they are more informed when making their decision because early polls show that um, that's not necessarily the case. Take a look at this poll. This is from CBS and YouGov. And when asked, how did the debate make you feel? 17% said informed, 19% said pessimistic, said entertained and 61% said annoyed. Nice. I would agree. When you have the overwhelming majority of Americans coming away from a presidential debate feeling annoyed, I just can't help but think we could have had better. I know that this is, you know, um, sour grapes, but Bernie would have demolished Donald Trump. Now, to the extent that there is a winner... I think that Joe Biden was the winner, and we're going to get into this. I think that he's the winner, not necessarily because he had a stunning performance. I think actually his debate performance was weaker here than it was in the debate against Bernie Sanders, the one-on-one debate, the last debate of the Democratic Party primary. But the reason why I think that it makes sense to characterize Joe Biden as the winner, even if this is subjective— is because joe biden is currently in the lead and donald trump is the one who currently has to move the needle this is the one debate where it's the first one between them everyone wants to see them face off millions of people are going to be tuning in for the first time might not watch the second and third debates so you got to make that first impression or second first impression at least on a debate stage in this cycle if we're talking about donald trump and i think that donald trump he wasn't able to read the room. But before I tell you why I think Biden probably won even though I think that is debatable, um let's get to some polls because it seems as if others tend to agree with that sentiment. An online poll from PBS and CNN found that 60% of people viewed Biden as the winner and 28% thought Trump won. A Data for Progress poll found that 51% of viewers thought Biden was the winner. And 39% thought Trump was the winner, although there are 10% that are undecided. This is a sample of 250 people taken online. So it seems as if people are kind of gravitating towards Joe Biden. And I tend to agree with that. Now, let me tell you why. Again, this wasn't a stunning performance. But basically, the bar was very, very low in this debate. All Joe Biden needed to do was not completely faceplant. And I don't believe he faceplanted. Um... But at the beginning i wasn't so sure because it was really clear that trump's overly aggressive demeanor it rattled joe biden it threw him off and you could actually tell that emotionally trump was starting to get to him and poke at him and he was fumbling but eventually i think there were times where he found his mojo and there were some moments particularly when joe biden hit trump on COVID and the economy where i think that it landed And I think that if you are looking for a leader and you're undecided, Joe Biden came off as the more capable adult, expectedly. But here's the thing. People oftentimes, in choosing leaders, they want someone who exhibits strength. And Donald Trump could be easily perceived to be the individual who's more strong. But that's if we accept the fact that people believe interrupting, being overly aggressive, is a sign of strength you could argue that maybe it was joe biden who came across as the more stronger candidate because he kind of stood up to that bully you know that schoolyard bully he didn't back down there were times when you know he stood up to donald trump clowned on him you know uh called him a clown told him to shut the hell shut the hell up and there was even this moment which i loved where he made fun of donald trump for his comment about injecting bleach
3: they're going to be This is the same the man it's who all told you up.
1: by Easter, this would be gone away. By the warm weather, it'd be gone. It'd be miraculous, it's like a miracle. And by the way, maybe you could inject some bleach in your arm, and that would take care of it. This is the that same man. Said sarcastically, that was said sarcastically, and you he, know that. I, 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 I was
3: said sarcastic. And so
1: here's the deal. That was
2: great. And uh, no, Trump, nobody believes that you were being sarcastic. Nobody believes that. You're embarrassed. So you can tell that Biden got to him. But having said that, even though Biden did hold his own, and I can see how the average normie voter would perceive, could perceive either one as being stronger. You know, the thing is that at a time when we see unprecedented crises taking place, you know, a pandemic, uh, an economic depression, just being belligerent and loud probably isn't going to do it. I'm sure that Donald Trump's voters, his sycophants, MAGA cultists, absolutely were thrilled with his performance because, you know, Trump gave them exactly what they wanted. But at the end of the day, it seems as if Trump wasn't able to read the room properly. Like in 2016, I can see how this sort of performance would have landed potentially because that was an anti-establishment election cycle. Everyone was just frustrated with eight years of Obama and neoliberalism. And even if you weren't necessarily supporting Donald Trump, it was at least entertaining to see him take on Hillary Clinton and criticize her. But now, you know, the mood is different in the country. People, they are worried. You know, they are fearful of what's to come. They want to get COVID-19 under control. This is the number one issue. And You know, if you're judging this debate based on who's going to be more capable of handling this pandemic, I think it's obvious that Donald Trump is just not a serious person. And it's almost surprising how poorly Trump performed when discussing COVID-19. So Joe Biden knocked him, of course, for 200,000 deaths because of his bungling of COVID-19. And what does Donald Trump say in response? Oh, well, if you were president, there would have been 2 million deaths. That's not persuasive at all. You can't prove that. You're just spitballing. And if you're going to use that number, why not say 3 million or 4 million? I mean, you're already being hyperbolic and bombastic. Like, this doesn't make sense for you to say that. And the worst thing that Trump could ever say, you know, to uh, Joe Biden and him not being capable of dealing with this virus is he brought up swine flu. If you're Donald Trump, you never want to mention swine flu. If you're Joe Biden, you want to brag about sw- about swine flu because that's something that you got under control. But who brought that up? It was Donald Trump who brought that up, which is astonishing because when you contrast Joe Biden's handling of swine flu in the Obama administration to Donald Trump's handling of COVID-19, which we all are dealing with currently, the difference is night and day. And with that comment alone, Trump possibly could have lost this election because he just doesn't get it. He doesn't understand what we want in 2020. This is not 2016. And I'm not saying that Trump's going to lose, but you can see here that he's lost. Now he's on the defensive. Now he's defending his record as a politician, as the incumbent, and he was completely incapable of doing just that. Now, on top of that, there were a couple of moments where you can see Trump trying to strategically back Joe Biden into a corner. Um, but I don't necessarily know that this worked out in Trump's favor. So, for example, he accused Joe Biden of supporting socialism with regard to health care. Now, we all know that Joe Biden does not support socialism. I wish Joe Biden was a socialist and supported a socialist solution to health care reform, but that's not the reality. That didn't stop Trump from saying, oh, well, you support socialism. At least the Democratic Party does. Um, and what he was trying to do was get Joe Biden to condemn Medicare for All, condemn Bernie Sanders, and he took the bait to an extent, but it's not like that's anything that's new to leftists. We already know that he hates Bernie Sanders and he hates the left, but after basically suggesting that Joe Biden was being controlled by the left, then, multiple times, he said, oh, well, you just lost the left, and it happened again towards the end of the debate during the uh, climate change portion, I want to say, when Trump- was talking about how Biden supports the Green New Deal and he shrouded out all of the greatest hits that were, you know, made up by Fox News. Oh, well, Democrats want to ban airplane travel and hamburgers, which is completely false. It's a lie. But once he got Biden to say, I don't support the Green New Deal, then he said, oh, well, you just lost the left. But it's not like The left isn't aware of what we're getting with Joe Biden. We know exactly what we're getting. So this isn't a gotcha. And the reason why I think this might have actually hurt Donald Trump more so um, than I initially thought is because this makes Trump look like he's contradicting himself. Because on one hand, you're saying you're a socialist and you're being controlled by the left. But then minutes later after Biden admits that he's not a socialist, then Trump says, oh, well, you lost the left. Well, which is it? Is he a socialist being controlled by the left? Or did he just lose the left and as a result lose the election? Like, do you understand? On top of that, Trump was able to switch like that and argue on both sides of the issue when attacking Joe Biden in a way that is just stunning. And it's not like it was subtle or anything like that. Like, people are going to notice. So, for example, he brought up the 1994 crime bill and I thought he was actually going to start attacking joe biden for this but he didn't he just mentioned it and moved on but he moved on to super predators he says that joe biden said that black youth are super predators however he is mistaken because that was hillary clinton who called black youth super predators at least publicly i don't know what uh, joe biden said behind closed doors But as far as we know, Joe Biden did not say that black youth are super predators, but that was the only criticism that he brought up with regard to the 1994 crime bill. So in and of itself, that isn't a very powerful critique. But to make matters worse, just minutes later, after accusing Joe Biden, at least insinuating that he is too tough on crime, then he blasts Joe Biden for not being tough enough on crime because Joe Biden refuses to say that he supports law and order. Again, which is it? Is Joe Biden too tough on crime and are you the one who opts for criminal justice reform and freeing all the people that Joe Biden locked up or is he not tough enough on crime? Is he so weak that he's allowing the country to devolve into chaos because he won't even utter the words law and order? Come on, man. Trump is lost here in an attempt to demonize Joe Biden. He lost the plot. He couldn't defend himself. And really, Trump had to have anticipated that his record would be up for a vote. I mean, this election basically is a referendum on Donald Trump's record. Do you want four more years of this? And he just focused on attacking Joe Biden. But in focusing all of that, you know, anger and attacks on Joe Biden— Joe Biden got in some pretty devastating blows, and there were moments where Trump genuinely embarrassed himself. When we're talking about COVID-19, for you to say, I brought back football, is not something that we care about with regard to a presidential election, Donald Trump. I'm the one saved. that brought
3: back football. By the way, I brought back Big Ten football. <laughs>
2: <laughs> okay.
3: It's just absolutely
2: baffling that this was his performance. Um, You know, because in 2016, Donald Trump was belligerent and loud and obnoxious at these debates against Hillary Clinton. But at the same time, he managed to land a few blows that appealed to people like he criticized her for supporting the TPP and uh, interventions, wars. But now you can't criticize Joe Biden in that same way because you'd be a hypocrite. But Trump doesn't care about looking hypocritical. And as a result, it just looked like he was lost. So, you know, Joe Biden, he didn't have to have a stellar performance. All he needed to do was shut up and give Trump enough rope to hang himself. And I think that basically that's what happened. Although I will say it would have behooved Joe Biden to be a little bit more strong in the face of Donald Trump. And I said this on uh, the Doomed podcast with Matt Bender. If he just like stopped and turned around and pointed at Donald Trump and said, You need to be quiet. Or shut up! I mean, he told Trump to shut up, but just like to look him in the eye, I think that would have been a boss move that would have undercut this, I don't know, this strongman macho thing that Trump was trying to go uh, for. And the thing is that, like, Trump clearly wanted to project himself as like this, this really strong person because he probably knows that people admire strength and leadership, but if you just interrupt someone over and over and over again, then- that's an impediment to there being any substance the debates can't happen if you won't shut the fuck up even for a second and it's clear why donald trump would not stop talking it's because whenever he was actually quiet when he didn't know what to say to defend himself joe biden made some pretty good points uh one point that joe biden made that i think was actually surprisingly uh Refreshing to hear from a neoliberal like Joe Biden was that look, this economic recovery that we're seeing right now, it's been great for millionaires and billionaires, but not for the working class. Now, I don't expect Joe Biden to do much to benefit the working class, but just to call that out for optics purposes, I think that matters. I think that really matters a lot. You know, Joe Biden is playing the populist role that Trump played in 2016, and Trump is trying to recapture the magic of 2016, but you can see he's struggling on top of that, Joe Biden made the point that we're not going to see a full economic recovery until we take care of COVID-19. Now, I'm paraphrasing, but it shows that he actually does have a plan, like he says. Donald Trump doesn't have a plan, hence why it's so bad. Like, in comparison with the developed world, we're doing the worst. Now, um, there was so much that stood out to me, but really what I think left a lasting impression on my mind is towards the end of the debate. Like, what we're looking for currently is someone who is a leader. There is unprecedented civil unrest in this country, uncertainty economically, a pandemic, and 200,000 Americans are dead. So we need you to be a leader. We need you to tell us it's going to be okay. At least the average viewer who's tuning in, if they're undecided, needs to hear that. And they didn't get that from Donald Trump. I think that Joe Biden, you know, he... Try to connect with Americans by just, you know, trying to uh, tune out Donald Trump and look directly into the camera. And I think that it's corny. He's obviously pandering. But at the same time, I think that something like that may land because at least he's pretending to care about average Americans. Whereas Donald Trump, he couldn't stop talking about how mean the media and Democrats were to him when we don't care about you. We care about what's happening right now. And to go back to, you know, the last portion of the debate and what left the biggest impression was Trump's response to committing to concede and not influence his supporters to do violence. First of all, Trump did not commit to tell his supporters to not do violence. He told the proud proud boys when it was asked to condemn white supremacist groups like them to stand down and stand by.
3: Proud boys oh
2: stand back and stand by and after that he actively encouraged his own supporters he urged his supporters on national television to do what is effectively voter intimidation I'm
3: well, urging first. my supporters to go into the polls and watch very carefully because that's what has to happen i am urging them to do it he's setting us up for a complete shit show. like he is going to
2: put us on the brink of a civil war. Like, not to be hyperbolic, I don't think it's going to come to that, but he wants people to be against each other because he thrives in the midst of chaos. And this divisive rhetoric currently, in the midst of a pandemic and uncertainty, I just don't think it's going to play well. I can't see how this will play well. Now, at the same time, I can see how coming away from this, you know, you can be turned off by Donald Trump. But did Joe Biden give you enough to be encouraged and energized to vote for him? I mean, if you value handling COVID-19 like a grown-up, sure. But, you know, this is basically a default win for Joe Biden in my estimation. It seems as if the reason why I think Joe Biden won is because Trump talked himself into a losing position and he didn't know went to press pause and shut the fuck up. And that's why ultimately I think Biden won. He came away better. And Trump needed to do enough, have a good, good enough performance, have some big enough moments to, you know, change the trajectory of this race. And I just don't think that he did that. And when you see early polls showing that it seems as if people believe Biden won, You know, um, it's looking good currently for Joe Biden. But having said that, I do not believe this election is a foregone conclusion. I think Trump can still pull off a victory because a lot can change between now and November 3rd. And not just like electorally speaking with regard to, you know, who's going to win, but in terms of civil unrest and just overall instability within the country. So, you know, this debate, it broke my brain. Um, I'm feeling very uh, pessimistic about the outcome. And um, it's just honestly still difficult to process what we all just watched. I feel like I lost a few brain cells. And honestly, like that was genuinely draining to the extent that I struggled to even articulate how to describe that. I think Andrew Yang put it best, where he said, You know, I feel like Joe Biden won, but Americans lost. I tend to agree with that. It, it seems like nobody won in that debate. I think Biden maybe won by default. But again, this is all subjective. Like my debate analyses, it's all subjective because I think that, you know, there was enough that happened to where if you were a MAGA ched, you could say, oh, clearly Trump demolished Joe Biden. Or if you're a Biden supporter, you can you can say, look, he clearly was more composed. He acted like a grown up. But, you know, I think that going into future debates, Joe Biden shouldn't be as composed. I think he should get a little bit angry, right? There's a lot to be angry over. So show some human emotion. And I think that will actually work wonders with the electorate. They want to know that you're fired up and angry and fighting for them. So I'll leave that there because I feel like at this point, I'm just rambling. What we saw was a spectacle, to say the least. And um, I am just more than ready for this election to be over, even if I'm dreading the week of the election, um, assuming we don't get the results on election night, because, oh my god, it may be a bigger shit show than the debate, and, you know, mentally and emotionally, I'm not ready for that shit, (laughs) and I cover politics for a living, so I should be amped up right now, but I'm fucking tired, and I feel like everyone else is as well, and, uh, you know, it's not just the left, it's everyone, like, everyone is tired, and Trump didn't Sense that like he didn't get that he still thinks this is 2016 and maybe you know bringing out that 2016 belligerent anti-establishment quote anti-establishment playbook is going to work for him again but you know i tend to think otherwise but you know we'll we'll have to wait and see so i think that one of the reasons why this debate was so insufferable and difficult to watch was because donald trump would not stop talking he repeatedly interrupted joe biden Again and again. And, you know, I get that being overly combative and aggressive is a debate tactic that can sometimes work. However, there's a line. And if you get overly loud and obnoxious during the debate, you no longer come off as someone who's dominating the debate and trying to, you know, set the narrative. You just come off as someone who is obnoxious and people hate you. Hence why 69% of viewers thought that the debate was annoying. Now, having said that, there were moments in the debate, they were seldom, but they were there nonetheless where Donald Trump was actually really quiet. And there were moments when he didn't know how to respond to an attack that Joe Biden was lobbying against him that was actually surprisingly Really brutal. So when it comes to COVID-19, Donald Trump has an abysmal record on COVID-19. He doesn't know how to defend himself. I mean, in response to the fact that 200,000 Americans have died because of his mishandling of COVID-19, what does he say? Oh, well, if you were president, 2 million would have died. What? You just made that up. He also brought up Joe Biden's handling of swine flu. You chose to bring up 14,000 people dying compared to 200,000 people dying? You're just a moron. However, when Joe Biden was going through all of Donald Trump's failures, and specifically why the so-called economic recovery that we're already starting to see isn't actually something that's benefiting everyone, Trump was silent. He didn't know how to respond. And Joe Biden managed to get in an attack that I think is definitely going to land. Take a look.
5: As I, as I said, posing the question, the president says it's a V-shaped recovery. You say it's a K-shaped recovery. What's the difference?
1: The difference is millionaires and billionaires like him in the middle of the COVID crisis have done very well. Another Billionaires have made another $300 billion because of his profligate tax proposal, and he only focused on the market. But you folks at home, you folks living in Scranton and Claymont and all the small towns and working class towns in America. How well are you doing? This guy paid a well, total of $750 in wrong. taxes. Sir, Any sir wait, wait many, no, sir. It's just the just the wrong two, state. No, I understand.
5: You've agreed to the two minutes, so please let him have it. Do
1: I get my time back? The fact is that he has, in fact, worked on this in a way that he's going to be the first president of the United States to leave office, having fewer jobs in his administration than when he became president. Fewer jobs. And when he became friends, first one in American history. Secondly, the people who have lost their jobs are those people who have been on the front lines, those people who have been saving our lives, those people who have been out there dying, people who have been putting themselves in the way to make sure that we could all try to make it. And the idea that he is insisting that we go forward and open when you have almost half the states in America with a significant increase in COVID deaths and COVID cases in the United States of America. And he wants to open it up more. Why does he want to open it up? Why doesn't he take care of the American? You can't fix the economy until you fix the COVID crisis. And he has no intention of doing anything about making it better for you all at home in terms of your health and your safety. Schools? Why aren't schools open? Because it costs a lot of money to open them safely. You know. They were going to give, his administration was going to give the teachers and school students masks. And then they decided, no, couldn't do that because it's not a national emergency. Not a national emergency. They've done nothing to help small businesses. Nothing. They're closing. One in six is now gone. He ought to get on the job and take care of the needs of the American people so we can open safely. All right.
5: Your time is up, sir. We are going to get to the I have to, to respond to that. Well, you both had two minutes, sir.
3: Excuse me, he made a statement.
5: I, so did people you. People
3: want their schools. No, people want their schools open. They don't want to be shut down. They don't want their state shut down. They want their restaurants. I look at New York. It's so sad what's happening in New York. It's almost like a ghost town, and I'm not sure it can ever recover what they've done in New York. People want their places open. They want to get back to their lives. People They'll want be to careful, be safe. but they want their schools open. People want I'm to the be one safe. that brought back football. By the way, I brought back Big Ten football. <laughs>
2: Again, that was one of the few times when Donald Trump was actually quiet and did not interrupt Joe Biden, because if you interrupt him, what are you going to say? You can't respond to this. You didn't anticipate that Joe Biden would actually take this approach where he's kind of out-populisting you, if I can make up the word, because I don't think populisting is a word, but you get what I'm saying. I mean, I don't think Joe Biden is a populist, but you've got to play that role if you want to outmaneuver Donald Trump, and he did that. So, when Donald Trump was bragging about the economy Trump brought up, millionaires and billionaires like him are doing really well. And that's actually accurate. That's actually accurate. And Trump didn't know what to say about that. When Biden looked at the camera and said, you know, how are you doing? That was brutal because people are struggling right now. We're seeing an eviction crisis and Trump is basically just kicking the can down the road, extending moratorium on evictions, but people still are going to owe months in back rent come January 1st. So Trump had no idea what to say. Also, Biden surprisingly brought up the point, you can't fix the economy until you fix the COVID crisis. And this is key because Trump wants to pretend as if COVID-19 is no longer a thing and just reopen the economy and send children back to school. But the thing is that you can't pick and choose between a thriving economy and, you know, um, containing COVID-19. Like, these are inextricably linked, You have to attack COVID-19 and try to aggressively eliminate it. Otherwise, you're never going to get the economy back in a healthy state. And it was never in a healthy state to begin with. But still, if you want to see any sort of recovery whatsoever, you can't just brush aside the fact that millions of people right now are losing their jobs. Hundreds of thousands have died and are getting sick because of this virus. You can't just brush that aside. So, What joe biden said here was absolutely brutal and if there's any moment that could have persuaded someone who was undecided to flip from you know uh, trump to biden i think that could have been the moment right there assuming that covid 19 is their number one issue and i think that americans do think this is the most important issue now another moment of the debate where trump was admittedly less quiet here joe biden did manage to get in a lot of blows that I think did hurt Donald Trump. Like, these are gonna do some damage here.
1: 200,000 dead. As you said, over 7 million infected in the United States. We, in fact, have 5%, 4% of the world's population, 20% of the deaths. 40,000 people a day are contracting COVID. In addition to that, about between 750 and 1,000 people a day are dying. When he was presented with that number, he said, it is what it is. Well, it is what it is because you are who you are. That's why it is. The president has no plan. He hasn't laid out anything. He knew all the way back in February how serious this crisis was. He knew it was a deadly disease. What did he do? He's on tape. He's acknowledging he knew it. He said he didn't tell us or give people a warning of it because he didn't want to panic the American people. You don't panic. He panicked. In addition to that, what did he do? So exactly so what wrong. we should be doing, and I laid out again in July what we should be doing. We should be providing all the protective gear, pos- we should be providing the money the House has passed in order to be able to go out and get people the help they need to keep their businesses open, open schools that cost a lot of money. You should get out of your bunker and get out of the sand trap and get in in your golf course and go in the Oval Office and bring together the Democrats and Republicans and fund what needs to be done now to save lives.
2: So he brought up Donald Trump saying it is what it is in response to the deaths due to COVID-19. He brought up how, you know, uh, in a conversation with Bob Woodward back in February, he knew about the severity of COVID-19, but didn't act knowing how severe it was. It's because of him that we are in this situation. And Joe Biden did a phenomenal job, surprisingly, at laying that out. Like, I'm by no means saying that Joe Biden did a good job overall in this debate because I think his performance was lackluster. And if you're going to say he was the winner of this debate overall, which I do contend that he basically won by default. But if there were any moments of the debate where I think that Joe Biden actually did a good job, it was these... uh, These two moments right here where Joe Biden actually hit Donald Trump on his record. See, in 2016, when you are, you know, the candidate running on no political record, it's easy to attack your opponent. But now when you're the incumbent, you've got to defend that record. And this debate demonstrated to people that Donald Trump doesn't know how to defend his record. He just lies and says, oh, well, you would have been worse, except that's not persuasive to voters. And so, you know, the fact that he didn't anticipate these sorts of Uh, criticisms from joe biden it shows that he wasn't really prepared and he was assuming that you know just being belligerent and loud would help him win this debate when that's not the case i want to talk about a moment from the debate between joe biden and donald trump that stood out to me because it was deeply deeply disturbing and i hope that anyone who's paying attention listens to this and shows this to anyone who's undecided because this should absolutely shake everyone to their core if they care about democracy so first and foremost understand what trump says when he's asked whether or not he will condemn white supremacy specifically the proud boys listen very carefully to his answer here
5: but are you willing tonight to condemn white supremacists and militia groups and to say that they need to stand down and not
3: stand back and stand by. But I'll tell you what, I'll tell you what, somebody's got to do something about Antifa and the left. President Trump, I'm you go urging first. my supporters to go into the polls and watch very carefully because that's what has to happen. I am urging them to do it.
2: So first, I'm sure you noticed that once again, the president did not condemn white supremacy, which is a very easy thing to do. Second of all, When it comes to the Proud Boys, he did not condemn the Proud Boys unequivocally. In fact, what he said was to stand down and stand by. Stand by for what? To say to stand by, that means be ready. Get ready in the event I need you to mobilize for whatever reason. Now, what that reason may be, we uh, don't necessarily know, but in the event Donald Trump claims that the result of the election is fraudulent if it doesn't go his way, well, that's when he can tell the people who he told tonight to stand by to take action. Now, we got a hint of that tonight at the debate, when um, he was asked what he would tell his supporters on the night of the election. And Donald Trump urges his supporters to take action that I think can be described as voter intimidation. Listen
5: carefully to what he says. Will you urge your supporters to stay calm during this extended period, not to engage in any civil unrest? And will you pledge tonight that you will not declare victory until the election has been independently certified? President Trump, you go first. I'm urging
3: my supporters to go into the polls and watch very carefully because that's what has to happen. I am urging them to do it. As you know, today there was a big problem. In Philadelphia, they went in to watch. They were called poll watchers, a very safe, very nice thing. They were thrown out. They weren't allowed to watch. You know why? Because bad things happen in Philadelphia, bad things. And I am urging... I am urging my people. I hope it's going to be a fair election. If it's a fair election, I am a hundred percent on board. But if I see tens of thousands of ballots being manipulated, I can't go along with that. And I'll tell and what, you what. what from a common sense, cent- does that mean you're going to tell you you what your it people means. to take to it the means you have a fraudulent election? You're sending you out 80 do? million and ballots. They're not, they're not equipped to, These people aren't equipped to handle it. Number one. Number two, okay. they cheat. They cheat. Hey, they found ballots in a waste paper basket three so, days ago, and they all had the name right. military ballots. They were military. They all had the name Trump on them.
5: Uh, Vice you President think Biden, that's good? And, uh, Vice President Biden, final question for you. Will you urge your supporters to stay calm while the vote is counted? And will you pledge not to declare victory until the election is independently certified?
1: Yes. And here's the deal. We count the ballots, as you pointed out. Some of these ballots in some states can't even be opened until election day. And if there's thousands of ballots, it's going to take time to do it. And by the way, our military, they've been voting by ballots for since at the end of the civil war, in effect. And that's, and that's what's happen, going to happen. Why was it not? Why is it for them somehow not fraudulent? It's the same process. It's honest. No one has established at all that there is fraud related to mail-in ballots. That there, somehow it's a fraudulent process. It's already been established. It, it's a, Take but, a look at Carolyn Maloney's I, I, race. I asked you now, you yeah. had an opportunity look to at respond.
5: Go ahead.
3: They have no idea
5: what Vice happened. Vice President then, Biden, go ahead.
1: He has no idea what he's talking about. Here's the deal. The fact is, I will accept it, and he will too. You know why? Because once the winner is declared, after all the all the ballots are counted, all the votes are counted. That'll be the end of it. That'll be the end of it. And if it's me, in fact, fine. If it's if it's not me, I'll support the outcome. So when Donald Trump refuses to condemn white supremacy,
2: and he tells the Proud Boys to stand down and stand by, and then says, I am urging my supporters to go to the polls and watch because people are going to be cheating, make no mistake about it. What he's doing is encouraging violence he is encouraging violence if he doesn't get his way he's going to claim that the election is fraudulent and democrats cheated and his supporters are going to um cause chaos the president of the united states is actively encouraging chaos so i mean it's like lose lose for america right because if donald trump loses this election then he is going to cause complete and utter chaos. He's going to sow division. But if he wins, that's four more years of Donald Trump. So either way, we are looking at a complete shit show come November. Now, I think that Joe Biden did a relatively good job um, at responding to Donald Trump, bringing up the point that, you know, veterans, if, if they're overseas, they vote by mail. That's the way that they do it. They've always done it this way. It's not something that is, you know, controversial. And the fraud rate is point. Zero, zero, two, five percent. So the anecdotes that he's bringing up, I'm assuming that they're made up because it's Donald Trump. He lies all the time. Even if they were real, there's no systemic issue with mail-in ballots. He's just saying that they lead to fraud because he knows, according to polls, Democrats are going to be more likely than Republicans to vote by mail. So he wants some excuse in the event he loses this election. It's damage control. But this damage control is so destructive that he wants to put us on the brink of a civil fucking war where he's encouraging his supporters to watch his opponent's supporters at the polls. That is deeply undemocratic. That's voter intimidation. He won't condemn white supremacists. He tells groups that are far-right militias like the Proud Boys to stand by. And he did this on a national debate stage. Like, you can say something like this during a White House press briefing when most people aren't paying attention, but to say this at the first presidential debate when tens of millions of people are tuning in, this is a bad look. This is a very, very bad look, but he doesn't care. He wants people to be afraid. He wants you to think, you better hope I fucking win because if I don't win, There's going to be hell to pay. I will make sure that I punish America. I will make sure that I encourage my far right supporters to absolutely raise hell across this country. That's what he wants. He wants you to be so afraid of what would happen if he lost that you hope he wins. But don't fall for it. This is something that everyone should be sounding the alarm about. This is something that the media should be screaming about. Because the president, the incumbent president, is threatening democracy. He is threatening democracy. And Joe Biden said, look, you know, what's going to happen is he's going to be forced to accept the results of the election because once the winner is declared, that's that. You can't do shit about it. Except the problem is that he can refuse to accept the results of the election and um, use the institutional powers that he has as an incumbent president to mess with those results, to meddle. So there was a story in The Atlantic that we covered last week where in the event it's really close in these swing states controlled by Republicans where they are, you know, uh, dominant in their state's legislature, what he can do is ask them to send their own electors to the Electoral College and effectively undermine the will of voters in that state if it's close and they go for Biden. He knows what he's doing and I hope that Democrats have a plan for this, have a legal team ready, because, um, you know, if this happens, they're going to have to be ready to take legal action immediately. And that ultimately may not amount to much if Donald Trump does actually get Amy Coney Barrett appointed to the Supreme Court, who actually uh, worked on Bush v. Gore in 2000, along with Roberts and Kavanaugh. So, I mean, this is this is chilling. This really should scare everyone. This is one of the stories that shows how Trump really is an anomaly, Right. In terms of policy, he really isn't that different from your average Republican, but this is what sets him apart, like his direct attack on democracy to the extent where he's trying to sow chaos in America to benefit himself. Like this is really, really worrisome and democracy is at stake and I don't think I'm exaggerating by saying that. So this absolutely stood out to me. This was the low light of the debate for me and I hope people are paying attention. At the first debate between Donald Trump and Joe Biden, one of, if not the most devastating moments for Donald Trump didn't come from, you know, a heated exchange between him and Joe Biden where, you know, Biden got in a jab or a sick burn. It came from Donald Trump exposing himself because when he was asked whether or not he would condemn white supremacy and his white supremacist supporters, as we all saw, he did not. The best that we got from him wasn't a condemnation at all. He told the Proud Boys to stand down and stand by. Not much of uh, of a condemnation, if anything, that was an endorsement of their behavior, of their support for you. Now, you know that Republicans facepalmed when they watched him do this because immediately after the debate took place, the Trump War Room tweeted out, Here are seven examples of Trump condemning the KKK. Okay, well, I mean, if he's condemned the KKK and white supremacists and far-right extremists so many times, why was it so difficult for him to do it at the debate when millions of people across the country were tuning in to watch him? I mean, if you want people to know that you do not support white supremacy and you unequivocally condemn it, wouldn't you expect him to broadcast this at the debate when all eyes are on Donald Trump? No, I mean, he did not condemn white supremacists because Donald Trump himself is a white supremacist. Now, you may say, Mike, maybe you're being a little bit too unkind to him. Okay, well, you know, I would disagree with you there. But at a minimum, you have to admit that there's a lot of white supremacists that support Donald Trump. And he wants them to support him he welcomes their support don't take it from me take it from republican rick santorum
3: who said the quiet part out loud on cnn where he was asking the president to do something that he knows the president doesn't like to do which is which is say something bad about people who support him right what
6: declining and, violence
3: it, well, well talking about the, the sub- white supremacy supre- his, 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 yeah the white supremacists. number one and number two if trump actually were a
2: good person and wasn't a white supremacist, then he would say, you know what? I reject their support unequivocally because we don't need their support. I have enough people who love me and support me who reject that ideology. I don't want the support of white supremacists. If you support me and you are a racist, don't support me. Don't vote for me. Like, you have to take a stand at some point, even if you will lose votes. You will lose white supremacist votes. But I mean, if you're not principled and winning at all costs is what you prioritize the most, then um, you do what Donald Trump did. Now, Senate Republicans knew that this was a disaster. And it's funny watching them try to clean up the mess that Donald Trump made, because this was a horrible look at a debate when people right now need someone who's not going to be divisive, who's going to try to bring the country together. Watch what they say, because they clearly didn't know how to do damage control for Donald Trump because I mean how do you do damage control for someone uh you know how do you defend the indefensible you can't so you just look foolish case in point
4: he misspoke in response to Chris Wallace's uh, comment he was asking Chris what he wanted to say uh, I think he misspoke I think he should correct it if he doesn't correct it I guess he didn't misspeak
1: he should have been very clear and he should have made it very clear that there is no room for people on the far left or the far or far right when it comes to either Antifa or these white supremacist groups. Should have been very clear. So were you a little disturbed by that? Well, today, is—I like I said, I
7: saw it afterwards. I was hoping for more clarity.
8: I condemn uh, white supremacy, all extremist groups, Uh, I think that uh, all of these groups are are hateful and uh, I condemn them in the strongest terms. We need to remain one nation under God.
2: It's funny because Todd Young there, you know, he couldn't really speak to Donald Trump and, you know, defend that behavior, because how could you? Again, you can't defend the indefensible. But he said, look, I condemn white supremacist extremist groups. Oh, well, look at you, (laughs) is the bar that low? where you condemn white supremacists and we're supposed to applaud you for that i mean look it's clear what he's doing here he's deflecting because what do you say when the president of your party you know the leader of your party the president of the united states refuses to condemn white supremacy how do you respond to that without looking like a white supremacist yourself so you just kind of deflect and say well at least i'm not racist he may be but i'm not racist uh tim scott said look i think he misspoke if he did he should correct Uh, If he doesn't correct, then I guess he didn't misspeak. To me, I think that what Tim Scott is doing, he's signaling to Donald Trump, you kind of fucked up here. And I think you need to correct the record. Otherwise, this is going to look a certain way. Now, I don't think Trump is going to pick up on that subtle message that Tim Scott is trying to send to him. But I think Tim Scott knows exactly why Donald Trump did not condemn white supremacy, I think he knows that. We all know that he knows that. So to him, this is a gesture towards getting Donald Trump to just speak up, right? Say the right thing. Also, uh, you had the uh, second person. I-, I love the both sides of this. He should have been more clear when it comes to either Antifa or white supremacist groups so you're trying to literally like both sides of the situation when one side is a far-right extremist group that has literally killed people and does violence all the time and they admit openly that they support violence and another group is anti-fascist and they show up to counter the uh you know marches that proud boys and white supremacists do like you're really gonna both sides of the situation here really And on top of that, how can you even both sides the situation when Donald Trump has already condemned one side? He condemned Antifa, but again, he refuses to condemn white supremacists. Why is it so difficult? I mean, it's almost like you have to question. Maybe he himself is, in fact, a white supremacist. And it's not just that he wants them to support him and he doesn't want to speak out because he's afraid of losing votes. He himself is a white supremacist. Now, look, he got another chance. Like This was a disaster, so a reporter the next day after this debate asked him, will you condemn uh, white supremacy? Uh, Specifically, she asked, these groups clearly love you. Do you welcome that? Again, very difficult for him to answer this question clearly.
6: Let me follow up. White supremacists, they clearly love you and support you. Do you
3: welcome that? I want law and order to... Be a very important part. It's a very important part of my campaign, and when I say that, what I'm talking about is law enforcement. Has the police have to take care, and they should stop defunding the police like they've done in New York, like they've done in New York? I just told you. you You I've always denounced any form, any form, any form of any of that. You have to denounce. But I also, Joe Biden, has to say something about Antifa. It's not a philosophy.
2: It's really, really difficult for Donald Trump to condemn white supremacy. Really difficult. In response to a reporter trying to give him a second chance to clean up the mess that he made when he refused to condemn white supremacist extremist groups on a debate stage, uh, she says, look, these white supremacist groups clearly love you. Do you welcome that or do you not? His response? I want law and order. I mean, Jesus Christ. He can't say it. Now she asked him again, and he says, I always denounce any form of any of that you have to denounce. That's his denouncement. I always denounce any form of any of that you have to denounce. Name it. You denounce what? You can't even name what you're denouncing. Do you understand why this is an issue? He literally refuses to denounce white supremacy. Now, there's just one conclusion that you can draw from this. He's a white supremacist. I mean, what more do you want? He refuses to condemn white supremacy when all eyes are on him. If you aren't condemning white supremacy when everyone is watching, you're not even trying to put up this facade that you are against white supremacy and you reject their support unequivocally. So, I mean, I don't know how Republicans and MAGA-chuds are going to try to spin this and twist themselves into a pretzel to make it seem as if it doesn't look as bad as it does, but it looks really bad. If you're asked repeatedly to condemn white supremacist extremists and you won't and you pivot to Antifa, that's a bad look. It tells us that you don't condemn white supremacist extremists. Not only do you welcome their support, but you probably agree with them. So this is bad. Uh, This is probably the most devastating moment from the debate that will have lasting consequences. And um, he deserves to lose because of this. Because if you can't even do the bare minimum and condemn white supremacy, you are a worthless president who is incapable of bringing the country together and representing all of the country. Shameful. Just shameful. Shameful. A video of Representative Katie Porter grilling Big Pharma CEO Mark Alice is quickly going viral online and when you see it, you're going to understand why. Because it is awesome. This is exactly what I want to see from other lawmakers, actually grill these big pharma CEOs who gouge their patients, not just for profits, but to personally enrich themselves. But before I play the clip for you, I do want to give you some additional context because what she is referring to here is something that occurred in January of 2019. So for that, let's go to a Bloomberg article written by Rebecca Spaulding, who explains on the same day Selgin Corp was announcing that it would be acquired by Bristol-Myers Squibb Company in the biggest pharma deal ever, the company was also raising the price of its blockbuster cancer drug. The Summit, New Jersey-based biotechnology company, which has routinely increased the prices of its top-selling drugs, boosted the price of a 10 milligram dose of Revlimid by 3.5% to $719.82, effective January 3, 2019, according to price data compiled by Bloomberg Intelligence and First DataBank. Cancer patients need many doses of Revlimid a year, and the overall cost can approach The same dose cost $247.28 at the end of 2007. Celgene also raised the price of psoriasis therapy of Tesla, the cancer treatment of Brexane, and two other drugs by the same percentage. In a statement, company spokesman Greg Geisman said the 3.5% increase is lower than the expected rate of spending growth in U.S. healthcare. Oh, well, are they not merciful? It's lower than the expected spending growth in U.S. healthcare. Well, that makes it better. No, I mean, the details of this story are pretty crystal clear. This company, Celgene, gouged their customers knowing that their customers who rely on this treatment for their cancer have nowhere else to buy this drug. This company has a monopoly on this drug, so they don't have an option. So if you raise the cost, they have no choice. They have to pay that. So, because you wanted to increase your profits because you wanted to increase shareholder value you gouged people who are vulnerable who need this and who have no choice but to actually pay this hoping that their insurance will cover the cost of this drug if they're lucky enough to have insurance it's despicable and the worst part about this is this company's ceo mark Ellis, actually personally benefited because they raised the cost and gouged their customers with cancer. Yeah. So you can understand why Katie Porter went in on him the way that she did, because this is outrageous. And, you know, shaming them alone isn't enough. But certainly this really made me feel better after learning the details of this story. So enjoy, because you're going to know exactly why people loved this clip after knowing how outrageous, you know, the details of this story are.
6: Do you know what this number is?
5: I Does it ring any bells? I, I think you're referring to my compensation in some way.
6: You'll, in some way. This was your compensation in 2017 for being CEO of Celgene. And that's a lot of money. It's 200 times the average American's income and 360 times what the average senior gets on Social Security. Now, of that $13 million, About $2.1 came from your company hitting yearly earning targets. Um, And more than half of the bonus formula was based on those targets. Any increase in the price of Revlimid would also increase your bonus by increasing earnings. Isn't that right, Mr. Ellis?
5: If revenues increased and expenses did not, then earnings would be enhanced. Thank you. Mr. Ellis, in fact, the Oversight Committee
6: found that if you hadn't increased the price of Revlimid, you wouldn't have gotten your bonus. Mr. Ellis, do you know how much you personally received in bonuses over two years, the last two years, just because Celgene raised the price of this one drug, Revlimid,
5: I receive very generous compensation, but I don't know the exact number that you're referring to.
6: In fact, you personally received half half a million dollars personally just by tripling the price of Revlimid. So to recap here, the drug didn't get any better. The cancer patients didn't get any better. You just got better at making money. You just refined your skills at price gouging. And to be clear, the taxpayers spent $3.3 billion on Revlimid.
2: Damn. That is how it's done. Um, look, I'll be honest with you. I always admired Katie Porter, but it annoyed me that someone as progressive as her didn't endorse Bernie Sanders in 2020. But I mean, if you're actually going to govern in a progressive way, I can put that aside. What she did here... Fully won me over. Like, I'm on the Katie Porter bus. Like that was really good. Now, of course, it it is the case that naming and shaming them isn't enough because you actually need legislation to control their action because they don't care how much you yell at them. You know, you can grill them all you want, but unless you rein them in legally, they're going to continue to do this. But the good thing is that Katie Porter actually does support and push for legislation that would curtail this type of behavior, which is important. Like grilling them is one important step, but actually reining them in with the law—that's what you do to stop this. Um, but what she said here it really speaks to just how greedy these people are. So she pointed out that that CEO got a bonus to the tune of five hundred thousand dollars just by tripling the cost of Revlimid. So understand that these CEOs have an incentive to do that—not just for their company, but personally the company made a lot of profits because they did that so if you can profit off of doing this because you know that your customers aren't going to have a choice and they're going to be forced to buy that drug anyway if they want to survive well i mean you do it you make more money for yourself you get a you know an additional yacht or a mansion and maybe you can't sleep at night maybe you do but it's got to be difficult right she also says an oversight committee found that if you hadn't increased the price of Revlimid, you wouldn't have gotten your bonus. So understand what's happening here. This ruthless, greedy oligarch who is the CEO of this company, whose salary was $13 million, decided that when choosing between making more money for this company and myself or actually allowing people who rely on this cancer treatment that my company sells you know, to just keep getting the drug at the same cost when... People are struggling. I mean, of course, he chose to maximize profits because that's what we expect the effect of capitalism to do to these companies. They all don't care about individuals. Like, these aren't human beings who take their medication. These are just numbers on a board to them. They couldn't care less about the health and well being to their customers. You know, if their customers that they have now can't afford this, and you know they end up dying because they can't get this cancer treatment they know that more you know customers will come along eventually so to them these short-term profits are what matters the most this isn't actually about helping people it's about making money and this is why the fact that we have commodified our healthcare system is so egregious when you have this profit incentive that is going to be what motivates these companies to act? It's not like they're going to act in an altruistic manner because they want to save lives. No, they're motivated by money and profit, which is why it's so disgusting, which is why we need to decommodify health care, move to a national system, start with Medicare for all and then build upon that. Because like when you have hospitals, pharmaceutical companies, insurance companies making money on the basis of what's going to line my pockets, I mean, I don't have to explain what happens. We see what happens firsthand in the United States of America. So I really, um, you know, I give Katie Porter credit, although, you know, I will say again, I don't want to um, overemphasize the importance of these types of public lashings and grillings. But I will say that the fact that she supports legislation to back up her anger, it really, you know, makes this exchange a lot more meaningful. And I hope that other lawmakers learn from her because what she did there was a masterclass in holding somebody accountable, you know, publicly. So the customers who buy Celgene, who have a choice, the few that do, and the people who are paying attention and voting, understand that, you know, if you want this to stop, then you have to stop electing lawmakers who are taking money from these types of companies who actually support legislation that do want to rein in these companies with the law, not with more deregulation. Because, of course, if you deregulate and you give them, you know, even more autonomy to do what they want to do, they're not going to do the good thing. Like, they're not going to choose to be good people and good companies. So, you know, you have to legislate this type of behavior out of existence. Regulate it away. That's the only way you're going to stop this. But kudos to Katie Porter so if you are one of the individuals in this country that has an internet connection i'm assuming you do if you're watching this video then at some point over the last couple of years you have seen one of those insufferable obnoxious prager videos they show up on your facebook feed your boomer uncle has probably shared one of their videos um it used to play before basically every single youtube video they are insufferable and they spread misinformation and they are radicalizing people with bogus right-wing talking points. I even did a parody of PragerU back in 2019 that I will plug right here and tell you to watch. But the Gravel Institute is launching an initiative to take on PragerU and to take on their dominance because they're funded by right-wing billionaires. That's why we see them everywhere. They have the money and the resources to blast their videos on every single platform repeatedly. Uh, but Gravel is trying to challenge that by launching a people-funded initiative where they actually challenge PragerU and they try to de-radicalize the people who have been misinformed by PragerU. Take a look at this introductory video. Even though this is just like an introduction to what they want to do, they're already off to a fantastic start. <laughs>
0: Hi, this is H. John Benjamin. I'm here to talk to you about a big problem on the internet. It's called people emailing my wife. No, it's called PragerU. Imagine a huge stream of lies that pours into every computer in America. Imagine it's disguised to look unbiased and packaged into slick videos. And imagine oil billionaires give them tens of millions each year to indoctrinate your friends, your family. Well, that's PragerU. And the thing is, it works. One out of every three Americans online has seen one of their videos, and 70% say that Prager's videos changed their minds. This stuff makes a difference, and every day it is pulling people toward the right. At the Gravel Institute, we're building something to beat them at their own game. Short, high quality, easy to understand videos, presenting leftist ideas and refuting right-wing lies. Stuff you can send to your friends, your mothers, your secret lovers, your mothers, lovers. Your known lovers. Oh, and we've got big name presenters from Bernie Sanders to Chelsea Manning. Here are a few that we've lined up. Okay, so this won't be easy and we're going against a Goliath, so we definitely need your help. We want this to be a collaborative organization guided by its members where we're trying to do something big. So hey, let's do this.
2: That Michael Brooks shout-out at the end, that hit me. So that was phenomenal. Now, I'm going to link you to their Patreon page. If you're watching this on YouTube, please look in the description box. Consider supporting them. And I know that we're all stretched thin. You know, it's an election year. We donated a lot to the candidates that we support. You know, people are losing their jobs. So if you can't, then I understand. But if you can, please consider supporting this because this is truly something that can have a transformative effect in uh, improving American political discourse after Prager U is one of the entities in society that have been disingenuously trying to uh, mess it all up and make it more right-wing and radicalize people who don't know any better. Now, I knew that Prager U was a problem, but I honestly underestimated how much influence they have because in that video, they point out one out of every three Americans has seen one of their videos and get this. 70% of Prager's videos apparently changed their minds. So when you have that large of a success rate, you're doing a lot to change hearts and minds across the country. Now again, they have the advantage of, you know, being bankrolled by billionaires. Republicans are able to have a lot more influence and radicalize people because they've effectively learned how to use the internet, right? Republicans online, like, if you go on YouTube a couple of years ago, back in, like, 2013, 2015, there were almost no successful right-wing YouTube videos, and just five years later, six years later, they're dominant. They are the main source of news and information for a lot of people, and these are right-wingers who spread misinformation, who lie at the behest of Donald Trump and the Republican Party. So you see what money does, right, to just sour political discourse in that short of a period once right wingers learned how to use the internet boomers got computers and then now all of a sudden this information is proliferating and people are much more right wing it's scary how fast and effective this is but i mean it's a reality now it's not going to go away you can't put the cat back in the bag so we we have to counter we have to deal with it and i think this is a really effective way to deal with that now what i love is that prager you you can you can see that they're afraid because They were tweeting about the Gravel Institute nonstop the day day that this was announced, and they were retweeting anyone who was shitting on the Gravel Institute. And they actually responded to Gravel in the thread where they shared this video saying, help us reach more young people with our videos. Donate today, to which the Gravel Institute responded saying, shut the fuck up. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. Um, Now, it's funny that, like, they have the nerve to ask for donations, go get donations from your right-wing billionaire daddies like why are you asking normal working people even if they're right-wingers to give you money like no go suck up to your billionaire donors like fuck off like it's embarrassing like whenever someone who has funding from large multinational corporations or oligarchs tries to ask normal people for money like not just them but like politicians as well like i cringe when i see this because no don't ask people who are struggling for money fuck you. Like, that's my response. Now, what I love is that they uh, responded to Gravel telling them to shut the fuck up, and they said, stay classy. So, of course, you know, they went for the uh, pearl clutching response, but the Gravel Institute then followed up by trolling them for being hypocritical with this meme, which I love. Because, you know, on one hand, they cry about political correctness all the time, but on another hand, you know, as soon as someone is mean to them online, their first instinct is it's the cry about civility and how, you know, there's no respect anymore. So they're literally on both sides of this argument. Like they'll take whatever position is advantageous for them, depending on the argument that they're using. And if you uh, see their behavior on Twitter, whenever somebody calls them, you know, a fascist or a Nazi, they always share one of their idiotic videos responding. Like, they have a response for everything. Whatever thing that they've heard a left-wing person say, they have a video responding to that, which I think is why they're so effective because they, you know, they set the narrative. They spread these videos around which get tens of thousands if not millions of views and this actually it works on people right because the way that they present this information it is easy to digest it's effective so if you don't know any better i could see how you would be you know misinformed by one of these videos and uh you know It's why we need the Gravel Institute doing just this. Now, they already put out their first video featuring Brianna Joy Gray and they take on capitalism and it's really great to see. I really want to encourage you to watch this. Again, I'm going to link to this down below. They mimic the graphics and the style of PragerU and this has the potential to undo some of the damage done by PragerU and, you know, what's interesting about this is somebody who falls for PragerU videos and they, you know, are grabbed by this style of videos, like the editing and whatnot, they might not necessarily know that, oh, this isn't a PragerU video. And you can basically approach them, this person who doesn't necessarily know any better, from a position where they aren't just automatically up in arms because they know that this is a leftist video that they're seeing. They just think, oh, wow, this PragerU video is, uh, kind of telling me something that I didn't know, and they're uh, disproving something that I was told before. Interesting. You know, maybe I want to learn more. And again, like, the way that these videos are edited, they're doing a phenomenal job. Like, they're editing it in a way where they display a lot of dense information, but it's easily digestible. And again, that's what makes PragerU so effective. So, I'm really all on board uh, with the Gravel Institute. Maybe one day you'll see me in one of their videos. Um, because I think that what they're doing is just, it's so important. Like, I kid you not, I think this is probably one of the most important things that the left has done in years. Um, because, you know, we're waging all types of fights, you know, for, uh, politicians that we support and reforms of many kinds. But this is something that we haven't effectively figured out how to deal with. The dominance of right-wingers online. They're dominant because people know about them because they spend a lot of money on ads when the left, we don't spend jack shit on ads like none of us advertise on YouTube. We aren't funded by right wing billionaires. So, you know, they have a further reach than us, which is why they're so successful. Um, And I really hope that this is effective. And just based off what I'm seeing now, you can tell It is going to be effective because they're already living in the heads of the people at PragerU rent-free because of how much they're tweeting about the Gravel Institute. So I love this. Uh, Kudos to Gravel Institute and their team. This really is important and potentially game-changing. The first post-debate poll confirms pretty much what I expected, that Donald Trump's toxic, overly aggressive demeanor turned off a lot of people because this poll shows that biden got a really substantial post-debate boost so this is according to cnbc and change research they found that biden is now leading donald trump nationally by 13 points now if this poll actually represents a new general trend and isn't just an outlier this is truly a substantial jump for Joe Biden. Now, according to Real Clear Politics polling averages, Biden is up nationally by about 7.2 points. And this has been a relatively consistent lead that he's had. But the last CNBC poll, had Biden up by nine points. So that is a four-point jump since roughly about, I want to say 10 days ago, mid-September. Now, towards the beginning of September, they found that Biden had a six-point lead over Donald Trump, which means that he made a three-point jump between the beginning of September and the middle of September. So the general trend here might not necessarily signify a jump because of the debate, since that was the trend according to these CNBC change research polls anyway. But it is reasonable to deduce that the debate... Is a contributing factor. Now, for more on this, we go to CNBC's Kevin Bruninger, who explains a CNBC change research poll conducted Tuesday night and Wednesday found 53% of likely voters nationwide said Biden did a better job in the debate compared with 29% for Trump. The poll also found 45% of those surveyed saying Trump performed worse than expectations, while 11% said the same for Biden. But just 2% of respondents said the debate changed their vote versus 98% who said it didn't. Another poll from CBS News' Battleground Tracker gave Biden the edge in the debate, 48 to 41%, while 10% said it was a tie. A large majority of respondents in that poll, 69%, said they felt annoyed watching the debate. That poll had a margin of error of plus or minus 3.4 percentage points. An instant poll from CNN and SSRS with a higher margin of error of plus or minus 6.3 points points showed 60 percent of respondents calling Biden the victor and 28 percent saying Trump won the debate. So overall, it appears as if most people said that Joe Biden won the debate. And as a result of his performance, he seems to be getting a little bit of a bump. Now, we do have to wait and see what other polls show as well, because, again, this poll could just be an outlier. So you don't necessarily want to base anything off of one particular poll like you want to see aggregate polling data because when you average all of those numbers out it gives us a better snapshot of what we're looking at here now in spite of what the polls show of course donald trump thinks he won the debate um and he didn't just like win the debate he won the debate big based on a compilation of polls according to him and he says thank you of course because he always takes things to like three to four levels above what they should be so if he lost the debate he's not just going to say i won the debate but he may say something to the effect of i won the debate bigly and it was probably one of the best debate performances anyone has ever seen like he always is so hyperbolic that i think that people aren't taking him as seriously including his base because you just like expect this you expect him to be overly braggadocious and and nobody believes you it's like the boy who cried wolf if you say everything is like one of the greatest things in history or you're one of the greatest presidents in history over and over again like we're gonna tune out like you've got to say that right uh but if you're curious what polls he's referring to well white house press secretary kaylee McEnany, she tweeted out these polls that show him winning by a lot the problem with these polls is that these are not scientifically conducted polls. These are Twitter polls put out by C-SPAN and Telemundo. So it's not samples that are representative of eligible voters. So it's just going to tell us what the people who follow C-SPAN and Telemundo think and who knows if these polls were brigaded by Trump supporters. So, I mean, you can you can use these polls for like an immediate reaction. I think they're useful to an extent, but in terms of like gauging overall where the race is these are not very useful but i mean i will say that whoever you believe one is largely subjective i think if you're a trump supporter you're gonna be thrilled with his performance if you're a joe biden supporter uh you're gonna think he did phenomenal he stood up to a bully but really what we're looking at is what the normies think the individuals who aren't necessarily on either side of you know our polarized political spectrum <laughs> It's hard to tell, but I think that Trump fatigue is a real thing that Trump isn't accounting for here um, because he's too narcissistic to think that. But I mean, we're at a time where the country is in shambles, right? An unprecedented collapse of the economy at the same time of a global pandemic and civil unrest across the country. Being overly Trumpian right now tells me that you're not able to read the room. Like, this was something that people found entertaining at a minimum in 2016, but in 2020, the mood is entirely different. People want an adult. And Trump, he at least needed to pretend as if he was a serious person and somewhat capable. And, you know, even if he was just like himself at the debate... I think that could have sufficed, but because he was so, he he just played up the Trumpian character, if you want to call it a character, he was like overly Trumpish. I think that hurt him because we're all just sick and tired of this. Like even people who support Donald Trump have got to be at least somewhat irritated. Even the creator of Dilbert, who is a right wing Republican sycophant, he is a loyalist to his core seems to be a little bit turned off by Donald Trump because of the debate performance because he can't do simple things. He can't even condemn white supremacy. So, when you vouch for someone and you put your credibility on the line for someone and they can't even do the bare minimum in terms of meeting expectations of what we want from a president and just condemning white supremacy, acting like a functioning adult for at least an hour and a half for the debate, it's going to turn people off. So, if we don't see a more calm cool and collected trump at that next debate i think the same thing may happen now the next debate is a town hall style debate so maybe trump's demeanor will be different because he's interacting with voters and not exclusively just biden and a debate moderator who he believes is biased so we'll see but if he doesn't turn this around and uh try to appear somewhat professional even in his own way in his own trumpian way he's going to lose. Regardless of what happens on November 3rd or the following days or weeks after when we find out the results of the election or wait for the results of the election, I think that everyone collectively is bracing for chaos. And this is because of Donald Trump. If he wins, then that's another four years Of Donald Trump inflicting pain and suffering on Americans only caring about himself but if he loses theoretically you'd think that that'd be cause for celebration among the more rational minded people in the country but you have to worry even if you get a victory because Donald Trump may try to shake things up by saying you know what This election was a fraud and I don't accept the results. I mean, he won't even accept that he lost the debate after we got multiple polls showing that he lost the debate. He still won't even accept that he lost the popular vote even though he won the Electoral College. So, whatever he does, we're all going to be watching closely because we're hoping for the best but ultimately bracing for the worst because what he does is going to have an impact on what happens on the ground because there are a lot of right-wing groups that are willing to do violence at the behest of Donald Trump if he gives them the go-ahead. And this should worry everyone, not just because of what Trump is saying, but because the FBI is even warning everyone to anticipate an uptick in violence among far-right groups because of Donald Trump. Now, The Nation published this report from Ken Klippenstein the day after the debate where he details an intelligence report issued by the FBI. And this report warns of violence by a far-right extremist group between now and and Inauguration Day. Klebenstein explains, The report, obtained exclusively by The Nation, entitled Boogaloo Adherents Likely Increasing Anti-Government Violent Rhetoric and Activities Increasing Domestic Violent Extremist Threat in the FBI Dallas Area of Responsibility, warns of the threat posed by the far-right militia group known as the Boogaloos. Marked for official use only and law enforcement sensitive, the document was prepared by the FBI's Dallas field office and is dated September 29, 2020. It draws on a wide array of intelligence sources, making specific mention of human sources, suggesting that the Bureau may have confidential informants within the group. The document points to several catalysts for the rise in the group's membership, including resentment over perceived government overreach embodied by the COVID-19 shutdown and the presidential election. The word boogaloo refers to a second American civil war, which the loosely organized, fiercely anti-government group has declared its intention to bring about. Its members often wear an outfit of military fatigues and a Hawaiian shirt. While the Boogaloos clearly contain white supremacist elements, many members believe the coming civil war will be a race war, their main focus is strident opposition to government. While skepticism of government is undoubtedly a common sentiment, the Boogaloos have distinguished themselves by carrying out significant acts of violence in furtherance of this belief. For example, this summer, one Boogaloo, Stephen Carrillo, is alleged to have killed two law enforcement officers officers in northern carolina so let's just step back and try to digest the information that we just took in the fbi is concerned possibly because they have informants within these organizations that between the election and inauguration day they are going to carry out acts of violence citing the presidential election as one cause for concern but also the COVID-19 shutdowns. Now, Trump has stoked fears with regard to both of these issues. You know, he lambasted the shutdowns happening in democratic countries or democratic cities across the country more specifically, but at the same time, he's constantly fear-mongering about the election. So if he tells people that he believes this election was rigged and Democrats committed fraud, this group, what are they going to do? That's a question like you'd hope donald trump as the president would be a little bit more mindful of this and mindful of the impact that he has knowing these far-right groups love him and try to like tone down the rhetoric but he doesn't do that he still uses explosive rhetoric and the problem is that it's not just this group the boogaloo's is one of many groups That is basically standing by, waiting for Donald Trump to just give them the signal to act. Oath Keepers is another group that may possibly do violence depending on the outcome of this election. So, in a comprehensive article for The Atlantic, which I will encourage you to read because it is very long and detailed, Mike Giglio profiles Oath Keepers founder Stuart Rhodes, who is already gearing up for a civil war. And, you know, he's not just like gearing up and preparing for one, actually, he believes it's already upon us. Like, he doesn't necessarily think that there's just going to be a single moment that catalyzes a civil war. He thinks we're going to gradually devolve into a state of civil war, and that's already upon us. Now, the group is mostly comprised of ex-military and law enforcement, and this article estimates that about two-thirds of the group is, in fact, ex-military and law enforcement, which is horrifying. And he views his role as the protector of Donald Trump, particularly from the Black Lives Matter protests, which he views as an insurrection. So if you already are an extremist who's on edge because of the protests and you think they're specifically there to undermine Donald Trump and your role uh, as you see it is to protect Donald Trump, What do you do when the president urges you to watch the polls? What do you do if the president says this election is a complete fraud? They're trying to do a coup. They're staging a coup against me. What do you think people like this are going to do? How do you think they're going to react? With how many far right groups are gearing up for chaos? For Trump to use rhetoric that he's using? I mean, I don't think it's hyperbolic. To say he is inciting violence, you have to tone down the rhetoric because violent rhetoric oftentimes leads to violent consequences. And to people like this guy, they view a civil war as an inevitability if they don't outright want one. So this is this is horrifying. They're ready to take to the streets and it's going to be Trump who, you know, fosters This environment where he tries to pit Americans against each other in a violent way, and you have one side of the aisle willing to actually go to war with fellow Americans over this clown, Donald Trump. They're just standing by, waiting for the go ahead. Now, speaking of standing by, of course, we all know now that Trump infamously told the Proud Boys at the debate to stand back and stand by. And um, unsurprisingly, they loved that they're selling t-shirts saying proud boys standing by one of the organizers of the proud boys rally in portland on parlor says trump basically said to go fuck them up this makes me so happy so they took him saying stand back and stand by as an endorsement of what they're doing as approval of what they're doing and on top of that Robert Mackey of The Intercept explains, The group's current chairman, Enrique Tarrio, a Cuban-American from Miami who attended the Charlottesville rally, also boosted an excited comment about Trump's apparent endorsement posted on Tuesday by another member who describes himself as a 33rd-degree proud boy, as well as a right-wing death squad general, an Antifa butcher, a commie killer, and a BLM skull stomper. Tario, who spent a year in federal prison for his part in a scheme to rebrand stolen diabetic test strip kits and sell them online, wrote on his own parlor account that he was extremely proud of my president's performance tonight, saying that Trump did an excellent job and was asked a very pointed question. The question was in reference to white supremacy, which we are not.
9: I don't know if a lot of y'all understand this or not, but come November, there's a war coming. Whoever wins, is it's down to two, we already know this, third party, they don't even matter. It's down to two. One or the other is going to win. As a certain supporter, we know which one's going to win. Trump 2020. But, there's a thing about it. The reason why I say there's a war coming is because if Trump wins... Black Lives Matter and all them other Antifa dumbasses are going to try to start war. we ready. Don't worry. we we ready. Us rednecks and stuff, we ready for y'all. But if Biden wins, we coming. And we coming strong.
2: So understand that these folks are hanging on every single word that Donald Trump says. They look up to him. They look to him specifically for guidance, which is why it is so crucial that Donald Trump speak with clarity, and tone down the divisive rhetoric. Otherwise, what's going to happen is Donald Trump is going to incite violence, and we could see violent clashes in the streets of America. Do you really want to see that? I think Donald Trump wants to see that, but I don't think the average American wants to see that. It may benefit Donald Trump to see Americans killing each other in the streets because he thrives amid chaos, but do Americans really want to see this? I don't think they do. No matter how far gone you are, no matter how deep you are in that right-wing bubble, there's no way you want to see this. There's no way you want to see Americans brawling unless you are just completely delusional. I mean, I'm sure there's certain portions of the populations who would love this, but most people don't want to see this. It doesn't matter where you are on the political spectrum. I don't care how right-wing you are, if the sight or thought even of Americans Killing each other is something that seems appealing to you. I don't know what to say. You're just too far gone. And the right wingers are the ones who claim to be patriotic. It's not patriotic to want to see a civil war. Now, I am not cynical enough to think that this country will devolve into an outright civil war, but still, like, we're seeing the impact of prolonged political polarization. We're seeing how polarization transcends just the political and starts seeping into society and getting violent. And Trump, in one fell swoop, can easily stop all of this from happening. He just has to say, listen, we're going to accept the results of this election because we believe in democracy and I'm going to peacefully hand the keys to Biden if I lose. And I expect Biden to do the same. He can easily do that. But he's not because he doesn't want to, because he wants them to do violence on his behalf. So this is deeply scary. The fact that you have so many people not just expecting a civil war, but pushing for it excitedly, it should make any American who's at least somewhat reasonable feel sick to their stomach. That it's come to this, that we have to worry about whether or not the outcome of an election and what a president says will put us on the brink of a civil war. Like what a dark time in American history that I hope we'll be able to look back on and think, wow, I'm glad we overcame that. At this point, I think it's indisputable that Republicans have made it more difficult for us as a country collectively to get COVID-19 under control because they don't take it seriously. And it's not just like they're not taking it seriously. They are actively harming us by spreading misinformation about the virus. Donald Trump is a main part of the problem with regard to, uh, this issue because cornell university researchers found that quote nearly 38 percent of english language news articles containing covid19 misinformation mentioned president donald trump so when you have one the president spreading misinformation and two not actually taking the proper steps to mitigate covid19 And then, when you have also uh, three Republican governors across the country, such as Ron DeSantis in Florida, just pretending as if the virus doesn't exist, well, it makes all of us worse off. It makes it more difficult for us to get this under control. But I mean, the buck stops with the president of the United States. He sets the agenda. If he actually takes this seriously and says, we've all got to wear masks, this is important, I'm going to mandate it, that would have a transformative effect. It wouldn't make the virus go away overnight like that, but would it make a difference? Yes. So in an interview with Chris Cuomo on CNN, Ted Cruz was asked about this and this got really heated really quickly and it turned kind of ugly, but I'm not going to lie. I enjoyed this because this was entertaining as hell.
8: Well, actually, governors have taken the lead and have had gr- much greater success. Texas' record on every they level is much, to. much better than New York and New Jersey and That's Massachusetts. Not true. Look at New York
7: Look at the rate every day. Thirty-three thousand deaths puts it versus fifteen thousand. They were the hub of where people were coming. You guys want to and celebrate China? You let in forty thousand people. It had already moved to so, so, Europe. So, so Chris, you let, let in, let in let tens of thousands people. Does they went you? to the hubs. That's does why it we got so you sick. At all
8: here? that New York and New Jersey had the highest death rates in the of country. Of course, does that, does that make you pause and say, "God"? It all troubles me, Ted. Worth, and to watch but, but, guys but,
7: like you stand by but, and Chris, stroke your beard you like a wise man, instead of telling Chris, the president to get on it when you Chris, have power. How about tell your, your brother to get on it?
8: My, uh, my brother will stand for his, his own record. Why don't you talk
7: to the president the way you talk to my brother, Ted? You afraid of him? You think he'll smack you down at home?
8: Oh is that yeah, what it is? Like you up into the, the Cuomo's. You, you guys are really Cuomos, tough. Not the Cuomo's, I'm
7: talking about the president. <laughs> My brother's not the president. I'm talking about the president. The one who called you a liar. The one hey, who said but your but wife me, was ugly. That guy, you know, the, the guy I, now I, who look, look, you won't say I, anything I, about. I,
8: I, I recognize that you like it. You actually wonder why you don't have a lot of Republicans that want to come on your show. I Did have you more than any other show and yell at me and, and insult I'm not, insult I'm me. not yelling at and, you. And I'm raising fine.
7: my voice to match your own because you, you want to play games, at Ted, me and, and me. people that's okay. are dying. That,
8: that, 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 That's okay, Chris. I, uh, you're perfectly fine to scream and yell because you know what? Oh, but you don't. You're doing it because you don't want to discuss the substance. Like, I had you, I, you invited me on the show things. to actually talk about the Supreme Court and talk about the book, One Vote Away, and instead, you just want to repeat insults over and over and over again. Oh, but you're Let's not. Actually talk about you just
7: bring Supreme up my brother for, for half the interview because you're such a fair guy.
8: Well, you play no, it so you, straight you, down you, the middle. You, you, were ju- right? you were just playing in a biased way attacking because the Texas, president's not Florida, at the and Georgia, of the food coincidentally chain. happen to be Republican states. When, when the death rates, th- th- they are markedly worse, and we should ask, when the death rates are markedly worse, worse in some states than others, we should ask a reasonable question. Yeah. Why didn't the president help sooner? That's the question.
2: Wow. (laughs) I watched that now multiple times, and I enjoy it more each time. And look, I'm not a fan of Chris Cuomo, but you've got to give him credit. You could tell that Ted Cruz was rattled. He didn't know how to respond because, like, as of late, he's been trying to put up like this: "I'm cool. I'm not a nerd persona." He's trying to be a little bit more edgy on Twitter, but at his core, like, this is a scared little boy. This is someone who got thoroughly embarrassed in 2016 by someone who ended up beating him, who had no political experience, who was a clown. And now, like, you're forced to lick his boots. Like, you've got to eat crow, and you've just embarrassed yourself even more. You've tried to basically become... The Ted Cruz version of Donald Trump, but everyone sees through you, it's disingenuous, you're clearly pandering, you're trying to, you know, be an anti-establishment politician like Donald Trump, be, you know, a little bit more aggressive in your tone, but that's not who you are, Ted, you're a nerd, you're a dweeb, and you're a loser, and you've transformed into a Trump sycophant, or at least you're pretending to be a Trump sycophant, I mean, I'm sure you hate him personally, but like, to get called out, you don't know how to respond, you don't know how to respond. So, it's funny that, you know, Ted Cruz brought up Andrew Cuomo to Chris Cuomo. I'm not a fan of Andrew Cuomo. I think he's terrible. I don't believe his response to COVID-19 was uh, good or adequate. I think that, you know, he's probably better than certain Republican governors like Ron DeSantis, but, I mean, the bar is really, really low. But, uh, you know, Andrew Cuomo is a ghoul. But, of course, if you bring this up to Chris Cuomo, that's his brother, so he's obviously going to get defensive and defend his own brother. But, you know, you're deflecting. Like, I don't care who you bring up. You're deflecting. You won't answer the question. You won't speak to the president's inability to get this under control because you won't take it seriously. And that's when it really, um, it got ugly or heated, I should say, because I don't think it was too ugly. I think it was, it was entertaining. So, um, let's walk through the dialogue here. I actually transcribed all of this because I, uh, I enjoyed it so much. Cuomo says, and to watch guys like you stand by and stroke your beard like a wise man instead of telling the president to get on it when you have power is a problem. Right there, I have no disagreements because, you know, you have Republicans who are so afraid to speak out against Donald Trump, even if we know that they disagree with him, at least on some of the things that he's doing when it comes to optics, but they don't want to. Like, even if People disagree with Trump's handling of COVID-19. Overall, a majority of Americans don't approve of what he's doing. Republicans are afraid to speak out against the more stupid things that he's done or hasn't done because they know that that's going to lose them not just votes, but even support in Ted Cruz's case because he knows that if he ever wants to run for president again, he's got to find some way to get Donald Trump's base, who previously hated him, on board. So if you speak out now, they're going to never forget this. In the post-Trump era, Trump is still going to have a residual effect on the Republican Party, and he knows this, so he's too afraid to speak up. He's a coward. And um, Ted Cruz then responds by saying, how about telling your brother to get on it, as if this is some sort of a sick burn? I mean, it's so obvious that you're deflecting. Like, we can have an honest conversation about the plethora of ways that Andrew Cuomo fucked up, but from the standpoint of a Republican, you can't really have this conversation if your own party is fucking up worse than Andrew Cuomo. Now, Chris Cuomo then said, My brother will stand for his own record. Why don't you talk to the president the way you talk to my brother? You afraid of him? You afraid he'll smack you down at home? Is that what it is? Like he shut you up in the primary? And then Ted Cruz just kind of uh, did a little, You guys think you're really tough. Something like that. And then Cuomo uh, then says this, I'm talking about the president. The one who called you a liar The one who said your wife was ugly. That guy. You know the guy now you won't say anything about? Holy shit. That was uncomfortable. Like, I hate Ted Cruz and I want him to squirm a little bit, but even like, for me, you could just see on his face how uncomfortable that was and it made me like physically cringe. Because you can tell he's been avoiding that topic like the plague because Donald Trump did call his wife ugly. And yet, he's incredibly loyal to Donald Trump. Now, we know that this is all political theater and Ted Cruz doesn't actually like Donald Trump. I'm sure he loathes him deep down, but we see what he's doing. Like, he is trying to maintain this facade that, you know, he loves Donald Trump, he's a loyalist, but we know that's not the case. And, like, you can really make yourself look more credible, make it seem as if you really aren't just some partisan hack like you are by calling out some of the obvious failures of Donald Trump, the way that he can't get his story straight when it comes to whether or not he believes masks are effective. At the debate, we didn't get a clear answer. When we need decisiveness in the face of a pandemic, like we need real leadership, but we haven't gotten that. So your unwillingness to criticize Donald Trump, even if you're trying to, you know, appeal to his base when he's ultimately gone, when you want to run for president again, inevitably, it still makes you look like shit. Because this is only one moment in time, and we are eventually, as a society, including Donald Trump supporters, probably going to look back at this moment, and even if you never you know, get out of the Trump cult, and even after he's long gone, you still believe that everything he did was good, you can still acknowledge how horrible his handling of COVID-19 was. It may be difficult to do that while we're in the midst of this pandemic, but looking back, we're going to see just how terrible he was. And that's going to come back to bite you. I truly believe it will. Now, look, not everyone is going to be as introspective as we'd want them to be, but it's really easy to get bogged down by a current moment in history, right? A moment in time, and you feel like you're never going to get out of this. But we will be out of the Trump era eventually. We will eventually, collectively as a society, look back at this moment in history and just scratch our heads and wonder, what the fuck were we thinking? How stupid were we as a country? Embarrassing. But... You know, uh, people like Ted Cruz, they only think about what's going to benefit them in the short term, right? It's why we don't see much action when it comes to climate change uh, with regard to Congress, because they're not thinking 20 to 30 years ahead. They're thinking about their next re-election and how they're going to make it to that point. So this was really just, this was entertaining. Like, I hate CNN This is a corporate news channel, but if they had more moments like this of just genuine rage against a politician who is a weasel, I would tune in more often. Alright, so we are going to start off this segment by stating the obvious. Mitch McConnell has got to go. It is absolutely essential that he be defeated because you can actually argue that he is worse than Donald Trump because Donald Trump is an incompetent buffoon, but Mitch McConnell is the enforcer for Donald Trump. Mitch McConnell is the reason why Donald Trump is able to put all of his ideas into practice. The reason why he's able to effectively appoint so many judges because of Mitch McConnell. So he's got to go. And even if I supported Charles Booker during the Democratic primary in Kentucky, enthusiastically so, and, you know, Amy McGrath, to me, you know, she is unappealing because her policies range from um, horrible to non-existent. I want her to win. I'm rooting for her because she is the only person who stands between Mitch McConnell and um, that seat in the Senate. So please understand that when I say Amy McGrath needs to take this campaign more seriously, it's coming from a place of love. I'm trying to make a good faith argument because i want her to win she's gonna lose if she doesn't turn this around she is going to lose if she doesn't turn this around now maybe it was the case that this race is just too difficult to overcome it's unwinnable you can never make up that gap right i'm not going to argue that charles booker would have had an easy time as well even if i think he was the better candidate this is difficult like mitch mcconnell is a behemoth so to win you're going to need to do a lot Having said that though, what Amy McGrath is doing isn't just ineffectual, it's actively hurting her. So she is testing out a couple of ads, and you know it's clear that she is trying something different. She's trying to appeal to constituents in Kentucky with humor using a cartoon. And she released two ads in particular that stood out to me. So this is the first one we're gonna talk about.
0: It's Swamp Turtles, starring Mitch McConnell. All rise for
3: Senator McConnell. Senator, Senator, is it true these Kentucky coal miners with black lung disease traveled 10 hours on a bus to see you and you only gave them one minute? Well, I should feel lucky to see me?
1: And reports of you ignoring constituents.
3: Well, I'm busy. How did this guy get elected? Tune in next time for
2: Tricky Mitch. I'm Amy McGrath and I approve this message. Okay, so that wasn't too bad, honestly. Like, it's clear that she was trying to pander specifically to donald trump supporters however you know i don't know how effective that's going to be but it's not the worst that i've ever seen uh but what stood out to me is you know towards the end there was that one constituent who looked to the guy in a maga hat and said how did this guy get elected and the maga chuds like I don't know. like do you honestly think that there are enough pro-trump anti-mitch mcconnell people in kentucky that that's going to swing the election? And even if we assume that there's a large enough voting block of pro-Trump, anti-McConnell people in Kentucky, what would make you think they'd vote for the Democrat? Maybe they just stay home if they're that disillusioned with Mitch McConnell. Like, you're really trying to appeal to the fringes here. I'm sure there are pro-Trump, anti-McConnell people that exist in the state of uh, Kentucky, but how many are there? Three? Four? (laughs) Five? I mean, you're really, you're going for the smallest voting block imaginable. So, I think that hitting You know, uh, Mitch McConnell for being out of touch, not actually caring about his constituents. That makes sense. That's what you do. You hit the incumbent for their record. And, you know, kind of signaling to Trump supporters that, you know, this guy, he sucks and you kind of see them. I mean, that that might work to get them to agree with you that maybe Mitch McConnell isn't great. But does that mean they're going to not vote for Mitch McConnell? No, because they're probably voting for who they view as the lesser of two evils what would make you think they're going to vote for a democrat if anything you're turning off your own base in kentucky because democrats want you to represent them but you're pandering to maga chuds because i'm sure she expects to just have them on lock and maybe she does but you know again i don't want to dwell too much on that ad because it's not the worst this this next ad is where things go off the rails yes sir
3: mr president Hello? Mitchie, we need more stimulus for jobs, for infrastructure. You try to block everything.
8: I do. <laughs>
3: Get over here, Mitchie.
8: Yes, Mr. President.
3: When I say jump, you jump. You owe me, Mitchy, big
0: time. Is he
3: jumping, sir? Connor kind of turtle jump? How high can he jump?
0: Tune in next time for
9: Stuck in the Swamp.
2: I kid you not, I watched that ad probably more than 10 times, while sober, mind you, and... I'm still confused. Does anyone know what the point of that ad is? (laughs) What's the point of that? Are we supposed to believe that Donald Trump is the good guy in this ad or the bad guy in this ad? You have competing narratives and I don't know what the point of this ad is. What's the takeaway? What do we learn from this? Why do we vote for you after watching this ad? Are we supposed to love Donald Trump or hate Donald Trump? Because here's the thing. On one hand, you have Trump saying, Mitchie, we need more stimulus for jobs, for infrastructure. You try to block everything. And then Mitch says, I do. Okay, so I guess Trump is the good guy because he wants to do all of this stuff, but it's just Mitch McConnell who's the impediment to his agenda. Agree to disagree. Uh, But so right there, we're supposed to believe Trump is good. But then... They portray Trump as this petulant child who demands that Mitch McConnell listen to him and he says, when I say jump, you jump. You owe me, Mitchie, big time. So the narrative is just sloppy. I don't know what the thesis of this ad is. Is Trump the good guy or the bad guy? Now, I can deduce based on her previous ads that she believes Trump is the good guy because she's previously tried to position herself as a pro-Trump Democrat. But i ask again how many people are there in kentucky that are both pro-trump and anti-mcconnell simultaneously however many people there are i can guarantee you it's not going to be enough to win you an election you are going after the fringes and it's not going to work now if you want to appeal to trump supporters I don't necessarily think that's inherently wrong, but first make sure you have your own base galvanized. And second of all, you can appeal to them not by pandering, but try but by trying to make like a working class appeal. Tell them you're going to help them put food on the table. You're going to help them secure healthcare. Make sure they know that you are going to materially improve their lives if you're elected. Now, maybe that's the subtext. Maybe if she gets in and helps Trump carry out his agenda, then they'll believe that, you know, by proxy of Trump, she'll be helping them. But nobody believes that. Nobody believes that. So I see this ad and I can't help but think this is a disaster. She's clueless. She's clueless. Listen, you have to win this. Another six years of Mitch McConnell, especially if he remains Senate Majority Leader, will be a disaster. He will do irreparable harm to the country. So, the entire country is watching. In fact, the world is watching you, Amy McGrath. Even if we didn't support you in the primary, we want you to beat Mitch McConnell because he's that bad. You're fucking up. You're not doing a good job. These ads are bad. Why would you go after the smallest possible voting block when you can appeal to a broader audience? What makes you think that pandering is going to work when that didn't work in 2014? Alison Lundergan Grimes tried that. She tried to shame Mitch McConnell because he didn't hold a gun properly. But guess what? She got curb stomped in that election because when given the choice between a Republican and a Republican light who do you think the Republicans are going to opt for? The real deal. The real deal. So, even Alison Lundergan-Grimes, this time acknowledged why we need a different approach, and she endorsed Charles Booker. And understand how large of a jump that is. She wouldn't even admit to voting for Obama in the 2012 election as a member of the Democratic Party. That's how, you know, far to the right she ran and she lost. So, You have to try a new approach. And her approach, after watching Alison Lundergan-Grimes' faceplant in 2014, is to uh, run further to the right somehow than Alison Lundergan-Grimes by positioning yourself as a pro-Trump Democrat. I mean, I don't get it. How can you be this dense? Now, it's not a foregone conclusion that if you shifted to the left, you would win. We don't know this, right? We don't know if charles booker would have won but would it have been an easier time closing that gap i think so because guess what when you have charles booker talking about racial justice and brianna taylor and mitch mcconnell feeling pressured to actually tweet about the black lives matter issue not saying the words black lives matter but actually recognizing it for the first time that shows you who he was afraid of so what you can do as a challenger is set the narrative not basically play into donald trump and mitch mcconnell's game but you walked right into this trap that democrats keep walking into and i understand that this is a red state it's a deep red state so you have to campaign differently but here's the thing you can look to other progressives running in red districts across the country i mean this is a statewide race but tweak your message like you can support medicare for all and say look this is a small business tax cut And I bet that more people would go for it than you'd imagine. You can do things to prove to people that in the Senate, you're actually going to improve their lives rather than just like pandering to them and saying, oh, I support Trump. Trust me. I'm a Democrat that loves Trump. Nobody's going to buy that. So here's the thing. The election is about 30 days away. You have time to turn it around still. You do, believe it or not. But that is going to be a very, very difficult task. And if you do things like this, I promise you, just because you have cartoons and you're trying to be edgy, that alone isn't going to suffice. Appealing to pro-Trump, anti-McConnell voters, that's too small of a voting block. You're not, you're not going to win with that. So make it happen. There are polls showing that she was leading... Uh, I think early in the primary when she would bring up term limits. Okay, well, if that appeals to people in Kentucky, run on that. Scream it from the rooftops. I don't know what's going to work there, admittedly. But what you're doing now isn't working and you have to turn it around. For the love of God, turn it the fuck around because Mitch McConnell cannot have another six years. Well, that's all that I've got for you today. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you've made it this far in the program, as usual, we're not going to end without thanking all of our absolutely amazing Patreon, PayPal, and YouTube members for not just helping us to survive, but thrive as well. You all are amazing. You are the lifeblood of the show. And truly, uh, your patronage means so much to me. So that's all that I've got. Um, I'll see you all next week. Have a great weekend. Hopefully you have some time to unplug and disengage from politics so you can recover mentally from what we saw this week. Uh, but if not, we'll just keep chugging along. Take care, everyone.